0: Sad and important, short stories and poems by Michael swain score by Davy Francis, cover image by Tock Block and Von Doyle, distributed by Small Beans. Found online at Patreon.com/smallbeans. This audiobook is dedicated to Daniel O'Brien, who helped me name it, and to Jennifer Moore who helps me name myself each morning and forget who I've been as many times as necessary. The house with no one in it. What's the big deal? It's just empty. It's not even that creepy. You go inside then, Aaron spat back. Michael laughed, bulged his bottom lip with his tongue and nodded a bit. I'll let you borrow Dusty. The offer had the desired effect. As Aaron mulled over her decision, she could sense every kid present holding their breath, shifting their legs to find more purchase in the hard-packed summer dirt, yes, but also to get that nervous energy out. They all wore Halloween costumes. Two wore capes that fluttered as huge quanta of wind lumbered around them, leviathan-like, invisible. How long? Two months. This time, there was an audible ooh from the onlookers. Michael elbowed Andy and the scrawny boy giggled automatically like a pull-cord toy version of the hero he was dressed as. No, Aaron, no! The brat's six-year-old voice was a piercing whine of fear, and she could hear his empty jack-o'-lantern bucket rattling against his plastic handle. "'Let's just trick or treat!' He tugged at the delicate black latticework of her witch's sleeves. Aaron was thirteen now. Mom had finally let her and her brother out alone for Halloween, even allowing her the blasphemy of choosing a scary costume instead of insisting on something from the Disney-Pixar universe all on the condition that if any harm befell the brat the punishment would be on her head and yet the thrill of the costume and the oncoming evening had already begun to infect her ignoring her brother for a moment erin examined the dirt bike pretending she hadn't long ago memorized its every chromium curve coveted the perfectly square nubs of its rugged rubber tires to which that new bike smell still clung to which even some of the little rubber whiskers that wear off right away were still attached. Michael's mom had gotten it for him as a consolation prize when he finished fourth in a karate tournament, a scant two months before Christmas. Aaron's mind boggled at the unfairness of the world. The bike was purple. Okay, she said. She looked at the brat. You coming? One thing she would say for him now that he was six is, The brat didn't like people to see him cry, especially two bullies like Michael and Andy. The brat blinked back tears, promised to tattle, then finally decided to come with her, of course, refusing even to relinquish his grip on her hand. Though Michael was a year younger than Aaron and only an inch taller, he was otherwise humongous and mean. They knew each other, had been playmates long ago, but had chosen different paths of evolution or had those chosen for them. Now Michael's freckled pudge was contorted in a grin, obscenely crimson in the sunset, framed by sweaty pats of hair extruding from the edges of a lycra cowl. He was dressed as a stormtrooper, one of the real plastic ones, but had his helmet tucked under his arm. His rich parents probably overfeed him, she thought. What do I have to do? Get inside and bring something back. Give me something to take, she said, so we know you won't ditch us. Michael snorted. "'Do you want the bike or not?' Aaron glanced over at the house. It wasn't that creepy, and it wasn't that big. The only unsettling thing about it, really, was the vast expanse of weed lots that surrounded it, as if no other house dared come close. That, and the fact that no kid had ever seen anyone leave or enter the house— Yet it stayed maintained, and no one's parents, of the kids who'd ever asked, seemed to know who lived there, or who owned the place. In fact, if she climbed out of the drainage ditch and up onto the ridge behind the house, Aaron could spot her own neighborhood. Michael said inbred cannibals lived there. Fine, she said. Andy said, ooh, again. Aaron clambered out of the trough, pulling the brat with her, and slung her empty pillowcase over her shoulder. She stopped briefly to turn back to the two boys squatting in the ditch, enjoying the height differential. But you can't take it back, she said. Two months, and I get to keep it in my garage. Deal, said Michael. But you have to bring me an artifact from inside to trade. Deal. Soon, they were moving into the pale yellow void of the affronting vacant lot. The brat dug in his heels, but didn't impede progress overly. Erin could hear Michael and Andy snickering, and making oogie-boogie noises at them. She looked at the house again. She had thought it looked very old-fashioned, like one of the big plantation houses from her U.S. history textbook, only smaller. As they got closer, though, she realized every piece of it seemed new and clean, as if it had been built very recently to mimic that style on a more affordable plot. Even the big dark windows, each filled with warped, old-fashioned glass that distorted the interior, gleamed back against the slanting sun, immune to the wind and the dust. If she had been a bit older, she might have called it faux vintage. There was no walkway leading to the porch. No stones peeking from overgrown straw, no tiles, no faint indentations or chalk marks where a walk had once been planned but never finished. The porch just started bluntly, as if the weed lot were the inviolable border of an enemy country. On one side, Aaron and the brats stood on dirt. One step closer, and they had wood under their sneakers. The overhang's shadow enveloped their heads, and Aaron felt a little cooler. "'We'll just knock,' she said, to calm either or both of them. "'If someone answers, say trick-or-treat. "'It's not even six yet. Just do it!' If no one answers, we'll go around back and maybe we can find something and say it's from inside the house. Let's just do that, the brat said. No, said Aaron. frustration rising in her voice. They have to at least see us knock. Little brother craned his neck back toward the two bullies. Tense glee was apparent on their faces at even fifty yards and through the shimmering waves of heat coming off the earth as it turned lavender. The sound of Aaron's small hands knocking on the front door brought him snapping back. He instinctively grabbed his sister's hand more tightly and rocked back on his heels, feeling a little of the sun on him again. The door swung open. It hadn't been opened. There had been no delay, no sound of footsteps, no click of a mechanism. It just opened. What looked like a heavy oak door creaklessly yawned open five or six inches, then stopped as if the force of Aaron's 13-year-old fist could have been the cause. But, she thought, that was impossible. Who leaves the front door unlocked? Not just unlocked, open. This was not an abandoned house. It didn't look abandoned. And she had knocked so tenderly, already imagining their walk around to the back of the property and what creepy trowel handle or doll part they might have found there to win their bet. But the door stood open Undeniably, a vertical shaft of pitch black standing there in the opening, a beacon for all to see. Well? Came the shout across the lot. Go in. So Michael could see too. Aaron didn't turn around. Yeah, what you waiting for? Yelled Andy, his piping voice carrying shrill on the breeze. This time she turned and made an exaggerated, angry shh motion so they'd get it. After all, was this about braving a creepy haunted house or a young witch's first breaking and entering attempt? Erin got the bad feeling. Not the feeling that she would get in trouble. She had already weighed the brat's inevitable tattling and her ensuing punishment versus Dusty the Purple in her calculations. But the feeling that she might be doing a bad kid thing. More than just a little rule breaking, but a real bad thing. She hated that feeling like mom's and dad's inside her head, punishing her before she'd even done anything wrong. Yet, behind her, across a field of gold, there was the bike. And more than that, the walk of shame back to kids who would not be kind about a failure. Who would, she was sure, be even crueler at school on Monday if she did the unthinkable and ran for home. She barely registered the brat's sweaty hand in hers as she pushed the door all the way open and took a step inside. Inside was a small foyer, identical doors to the left and right, a hallway corner ahead, and a set of shiny wood stairs up to a small landing and more doors. It wasn't as dark as Aaron had thought it would be, once her eyes adjusted, and the interior of the house resembled the outside, stately and old-fashioned, but spotless and new, as if they'd just missed the cleaning lady. No cobwebs, not even dust motes in the shaft of light coming in from outside. Still, Aaron kept her body in the open doorway, hand on the door, not wanting to venture any further. The brat made little whiny noises. We'll take that. She pointed to a wooden pedestal by the staircase. On it was a hand-thrown ceramic bowl, partially glazed with a thick blue, gloopy glaze, filled to the brim with what looked like decorative stones. A number of white tapers were nestled in the rocks, unlit, all the same height and straight as a quiver of arrows. No! No! said the brat in a whisper. He tried to pull her back across the threshold. Come on, fraidy cat. We'll just take some rocks. They won't even notice they're missing. With her superior bulk, it was easy enough to drag the tiny protesting mummy across the room with her, whether he wanted to come or not. And though she wouldn't admit it, she wasn't about to let go of her brother's hand before they were back outside, so it was both of them who would have to do it. She yanked him across the room, step by step, both staying quiet, the brat muttering no again and again. It was only 10 steps to the alcove with the pedestal in it, but it seemed to take a full minute to cover the expanse. Once there, Aaron quickly scooped three of the small, smooth stones out of the bowl, careful not to disturb the candles, and dropped them into her pillowcase. They hung small and hard at the bottom, candy for someone with a taste for broken teeth. She held the pillowcase in one hand and the brat in the other. The top of her head felt unbearably hot in her witch's hat, and she thought she could feel her green face paint running with sweat. "'Okay,' she said. When they turned around, the door was closed. Again, it hadn't made a sound. Aaron could not remember the light in the room having changed, but it was closed now, and she saw for the first time had no knob on the inside. Where the knob and a lock should be, there was just a blank brass faceplate polished to a glow. She could see the swirl pattern where whomever had polished it had wiped the rag around in a circle. The brat started crying. Aaron jerked at his hand, reminding him to keep quiet in a harsh whisper. He didn't listen. "'I want to go!' he moaned, hot tears fudging his face paint soaking into the collar of his costume. Aaron's fear of getting in trouble, serious trouble, now greatly outweighed her bad feeling. Her heart pounded in her ears as she considered her options. She didn't want to call her parents, not yet. She certainly didn't want to go further into the house.' Aaron stared at the blank plate for a moment, trying to puzzle out how or why such a door had ever been built. She reached out and pushed on it. The door didn't budge an atom. She felt around for a slot for a keycard, like a hotel room door, or any kinds of buttons that weren't immediately visible. All she did was add a patina of fingerprint smears to the bronze. She imagined police in this room, yellow tape over all the doors, one kneeling down to lift her prints from the gleaming metal. It was 10 whole minutes before the brat stopped crying, and Aaron stopped caring about being quiet. They had already tried their emergency cell phone, which was completely dead. Aaron had sworn she charged it, but there was no arguing with an empty screen. The only two windows in the foyer were tall vertical ones on either side of the front door, which were cut up into little sections by thick leadwork, and most of the panes were colored. It cast a beautiful multi-hued light into the room, but with the sun almost set now, Aaron had no chance of spotting Michael and Andy across the dark front fields or even verifying that they were still waiting for her. They knocked on the inside of the door. Very quietly, at first. Then louder. Then very loud. Slamming their fists and kicking the baseboard, the both of them at once, yelling for Michael and Andy. It was this which made Aaron certain there was no one in the house with them. They hadn't heard so much as a creak, settle, or pin drop in response. Even the sound of the wind outside seemed to die at the front porch. Aaron didn't think the rocks in the bowl were big or heavy enough to break a thick stained glass window. Even if they did, she'd have to find a way to break the iron bits in between the glass and, of course, deal with whatever capital punishment her parents would devise for vandalism. She shuddered and stole a glance at the brat, who was now lying in one corner, spooning his pumpkin bucket and sucking his thumb. His eyes were vacant. She swallowed a lump in her throat, turned to the center of the room, and managed a Hello? Anyone? Loud enough to echo from the vaulted ceiling, but nowhere near confident. We're lost! We got locked in! Hello? Even louder. The silence in the room filled every null space available like packing foam keeping them in place for shipment. In the vast emptiness of it, Aaron imagined, for the first time, a monster in the next room. A killer clown through the wall. Up to this point, she had only imagined herself in mundane kinds of trouble, had only been thinking on the level plane of reality. It was now that the child in her assumed a measure of control and projected the far worse fates that only the imagination can conjure. Aaron thought she heard something scrape against the floor in the room to the left of her. Her spatial brain told her the thing that made the sound was approaching would be here in moments. She took three hurried steps to the relevant door and grabbed the knob, holding it shut with all her might. Did you hear that? It took the brat a long time to answer. In that time, the door didn't budge. There were no more crab noises from the other side. Even though Aaron strained so hard to listen for them, she thought she could hear her hair growing. The flow of her blood, the filling and collapse of the alveoli in her lungs. Hear what? No. Aaron was quiet, still listening. Stop it. You're trying to scare me. No, I'm not. More nothing. Aaron let go of the knob. Even as the springs inside wiggled the handle back into perfect alignment, the mechanisms made no noise. She was embarrassed now as well as afraid. She hadn't heard anything, of course. Two deep breaths. And then... We need to look around, she said, for a way out. She had expected, maybe even hoped for, some argument from the brat. Screaming, a tantrum, some token of babyishness so raw and primal that their mother would have had no choice but to come running. But the little six-year-old mummy gathered himself from the floor, gravitated over to his sister, wiped mucus on one gauze forearm, and nodded. She was the parent right now, Aaron realized. She wouldn't get any more arguments from the brat. Although she was positive he'd have no difficulty telling on her later, it was her responsibility now to save the day. Somehow, though she would have thought such an epiphany would make things scarier, the realization comforted Aaron. If the brat thought she could get them out of trouble, then maybe she could. She could be, had to be, the adult for both of them. I don't think anyone is here, she said, in the nice voice mom used to use when they were younger. Maybe we'll find a butler or something, or a back door. The brat nodded again, eyes wide, and she guided him gently back across the floor. Together, holding hands, they opened one door and then the other, leaving the staircase for last. Aaron opened the left side door first to prove to herself that no scuttling thing lurked on the other side. And there was nothing, just a warmly lit wood-paneled hallway with more doors on either side. These ones all had knobs. At the end of the hall, it looked to open up into some kind of larger den or living room. The door on the right side yielded stairs, descending into darkness. The stairs turned a cubic U after ten steps or so, and they didn't venture to look around the corner since they would have had to pass over the door's threshold to do so. Aaron no longer trusted the doors in this house. They walked up the staircase in the main foyer, careful to hold the railing the whole way, and at the top found even more closed doors that, when peeked through, offered up perfectly made guest beds and linen closets with fresh sheets folded crisply and waiting to be deployed. Off the upstairs landing, another hallway led left and right. The living room. "'Aaron decided. Maybe there's a phone we can use.' "'The brat nodded. They went back downstairs. "'Aaron held her brother's tiny fist in hers, "'turned the knob on the left-hand door again. "'All the doors seemed to be weighted to close themselves when not in use, "'and opened it once more onto the hallway that terminated in a den. "'She stepped through, "'half expecting to feel a static charge wash over them, "'but nothing happened. "'A few more steps down the hallway,' and she felt her brother's hand tighten into a rock-hard ball and go ice cold. She looked back at him instinctively, wondering what could have frightened him so badly. Where she had been holding his hand in hers, now she was grasping a cool bronze doorknob. Before she could stop herself, her inertia pulled the door to the foyer shut behind her. This time, she heard the click. Brat's shrieks were piercing, even through the thick wood of the door. Erin herself felt like screaming, weeping, shaking him, and kicking down the door all at once. Instead, she twisted the knob and wrenched the door open again, onto another featureless guest room. Small, perfectly made bed, footstool, a desk, a lamp, a little bookcase with inoffensive knickknacks, even a half-empty water glass sitting on a silver tray on the desk. The glass had a transparent pitcher of fresh water next to it with ice cubes bobbing in it. Aaron, Aaron! The brat was still sobbing and screaming her name but he sounded a little quieter now. Maybe he had calmed down, she thought, even as her own panic mounted. How could this be happening? She had just come through this door and now it led somewhere else. The world spun around her, everything she knew, her whole short collection of life experiences thrown into question. It's okay, I'm here, she yelled. I'm right through the door, can you open it? To her relief, she heard her brother stop shrieking, calm himself down, and yell back. Yeah, it's a hallway, it's the same hallway, where are you, Aaron? I'm in a bedroom, she said, one of the ones upstairs, I think, it must be a secret passage or something, should I go in? His voice was definitely quieter, but not just that. Muffled, too. Aaron was sure he sounded more than a room away, as if she were hearing him through more walls than she should be. She wondered what the walls were insulated with. She had seen her dad open up their walls once, and there was a bunch of pink foam inside. House guts, she had called them. "'No,' she said. "'Did you hear me? Don't. I'll come to you.' "'Okay.' Another mumble through the door. Only now, she was in a room with no windows and one door, and the door was open, and it was the one she had just come through. Almost numb through the haze of panic, Erin acquiesced to the rules the house seemed to be enforcing. Stepping fully inside the room, she shut the door, waited a second, and opened it again. Thankfully it hadn't locked or magically vanished when she shut it, but again, It opened into a new space entirely. This time, it was a tall cylindrical red room, some kind of colonnade that would have to be on the second or top floor. The room was sparsely furnished and smelled musty, as if it were some secret hideaway that only the master of the house frequented featured a wooden chair with some old books stacked next to it and a number of big bay windows in the curved wall opposite the door. Two other closed doors led out of the room in different directions. She stepped inside but didn't let her door shut. Hello? Can you hear me? This time her brother's voice was much quieter. He said he could hear her. He was crying again, and when Aaron shouted back to try and calm him down, she noticed that her voice, too, was cracked and broken with jagged sobs. The brat was crying so hard and his voice so muffled, Aaron had a hard time talking to him after that. She tried to explain to him about the doors, that they needed to stay put and figure out a plan to keep from getting further apart, but she wasn't sure he heard her. She thought she heard him say something about coming to her and was flooded with a fresh wave of terror. No, she shouted to the empty room, so loud her chest ached with the effort. No, stay there, stay right there, but he wouldn't listen or couldn't hear her. As he screamed and sobbed and his footsteps squeaked from one room to the next, she could hear doors closing. His cries get further and further away. Aaron strained at the knob she refused to let go of, looking compulsively back and forth from the guest room she had come from to the windowed colonnade she was half inside. "'Casey!' she screamed. "'Casey, don't go! Stay where I can hear you! Please, don't go!' Her brother's screams dwindled altogether then. Their last decibels snapped into silence by the shutting of some door in some other room of the house. "'Don't leave me!' she screamed. "'Don't go!' Aaron was flushed with cold sweat. Her spine vibrated. Finally relinquishing her hold on the door, she crossed quickly to the windows, ready to smash them open with her own fists and leap from the roof if need be. They were warped, old-fashioned glass like the windows in the foyer had been, but they weren't bisected with lead, and they were big enough to grant a view of the outside world. Aaron was shocked to find she was facing the front of the house. That, in fact, she could just barely make out little smudges in the twilight that had to be Andy and Michael. For a moment, she was able to shut the impossibleness of it all out of her mind. She could imagine mom and dad explaining this all to her. Some rational explanation. Some horrible trick that had been played on her. And it would all be over. And, in a way, it was. Because as Aaron looked down, just at that moment... She saw a white smudge and a black smudge blast out of the front door of the house and shoot across the yellow field. The Andy and Michael smudges moved to intercept the new smudges and she knew for sure that it was her and Casey coming out of the house. She tracked their path with her eyes, a pointy-headed witch and a little white mummy coming back to claim triumph after a scary dare. No harm done. She cried again then for a very long time. She screamed and hurled the chair against the windows too, but they seemed unbreakable, and the smudges outside paid no attention. They just wandered down the road, fighting over the purple bike until all were invisible. The sun set. It became dark. Erin had never felt so alone. She realized with shock that she must have only been in this house for half an hour, an hour at most. Yet she knew absolutely no one would be coming in the morning. No tenants would arrive to fetch them, no landlord to admonish them and call their parents. After a night and a day, Erin left that room. She had awoken from a nap, her empty stomach churning with acid, to find one of the doors to her little colonnade standing open, onto a breakfast nook with a bare bulb hanging over a yellow linoleum table. Sitting on the table was a bowl of stale, hard candy. There was a glass with two fingers of old milk in it, too. Aaron could swear the floorboards cackled at her as she crossed them to get to her meager meal. By her best guess, Aaron was seventeen when she heard Casey's voice again. She didn't think of him as the brat anymore, just Casey. He would be ten now. She had been camped out for five days or more in a well-stocked library, feeding off scraps she'd carried with her and using a wastebasket as a toilet and book pages as paper. The whore, that's how she thought of the house now, seemed to delight in cleaning up her waste while she slept but rarely left her food and almost never water. Whatever invisible staff labored under the whore's command, they did good work. Her dad had said the word whore a couple times in front of her. She had been acutely uncomfortable at the time, feeding off of his angry vibe and her mother's outrage, but now she used the word like a weapon and a tie to her family. Aaron wondered if the version of her that she had seen leave the house was just like her, How it could possibly fool her own parents. She wondered if the windows had just shown her that, like a movie, to torment her. She wondered about ghosts. She wondered about hell. She wondered about time loops and sin and Indian burial grounds, but the whore never said a word. The other thing about this room was it had a skylight, big enough for Aaron to fit through. She had not seen windows of any sort in any of the whore's chambers since the colonnade room four years earlier. She had been unable to think of a way to reach it so far, but liked to nap in the square of sunlight it let in, or watch the lit patch migrate across the floor. She imagined growing up in this library, learning everything she needed to from the books until she was as strong and big as her dad. She wondered if he were here if he would be able to break the glass. If they could reach it, that is. And of course, her lack of food and water would force her to move on soon, as it always did, deeper into the house. No matter what door she chose, no matter what room it spat her into, Aaron always thought of it as deeper. Casey's cries were, by this point, a cruel joke. Just loud enough to make her sure it was her brother, far too muffled to attempt any communication, She tried anyway, screaming herself hoarse, knocking bookshelves over, exhausting her body pounding against the walls and doors. Casey only cried and called her name. Eventually, she couldn't take it anymore and ran out of the library and through seven other doors before she collapsed, panting into a just-cleared dining room replete with the smells of a Thanksgiving dinner lingering in the rafters. She didn't talk to Casey again for 11 years. poor, found other ways to torture Erin, of course. Four days after finally abandoning her cell phone as a worthless good luck charm, she came into a room stuffed with furniture that seemed right out of an antique store, except for the glaring anachronism of an iPhone 5S charger plugged into one wall. There had been cellars, lofts, laundry rooms, drawing rooms, ballrooms, bedrooms, hallways that opened into hallways that opened into hallways without end. But never, never a bathroom. And later, much later, Erin stumbled into a gleaming kitchen and found the fridge fully stocked. It was a big brushed steel number, the first reflective surface she had encountered since she knocked on the front door so long ago. Across it, she saw her own skeletal figure, her Halloween costume reduced to a shredded black toga stretched tight on her malnourished shoulders. Her face looked green, but she couldn't imagine it was from face paint applied more than a decade before. She stayed in that kitchen for three weeks, sleeping on the center island and enjoying watching herself fatten up a little on the groceries and fresh water in the fridge. The day she had eaten the last of it, she filled a bunch of Tupperware with water from the sink and moved on. She actually felt her stamina coming back, at least to some modest degree, and wondered again if she was up to the task yet of breaking through one of the whore's sturdy interior walls. In the next room, she found Casey's body. The stench of rot was like a wall. Casey was naked, in the middle of a dried puddle of blood and bodily fluids, head resting on the wadded remnants of his mummy costume. He was black with filth and light as a feather. He looked like a real mummy now, from out of a History Channel show, face all dried skin and sunken eyes. It looked like he had died sometime in the midst of puberty clash of an unevenly growing young man's body, now withered into desiccation, was grotesque. Around him, the room's floor nearly sagged under the weight of his excrement, never cleaned, piled to the ceiling in every corner and against the walls. His fingernails were splintered and broken, his thumb in his mouth. On one bare patch of wall across from her, the wallpaper had been clawed off and the name Aaron carved into the plaster many times his plastic pumpkin sat near him, overflowing with untouched candy. Aaron collapsed, clutched the body to her. Oh, Casey, oh, Casey. She wept, she cooed to him, she screeched abuse at the whore. Aaron cursed the house to hell from the deepest parts of her soul, but only silence answered back. It took her a long time to recognize the room as the foyer she had left him in so many years ago. When she finally noticed the closed front door with no handle on it, she actually laughed. He'd never left the room. He just waited for her. Big sister. Caretaker. Erin tried to hang herself three rooms later with a rope made from sheets. The chandelier in the ceiling didn't hold, of course. Neither did it crush her. She considered tying herself up somewhere to die of thirst, but kept that plan in her back pocket. When she was older, in her middle age, Erin did manage to knock holes in some of the walls. Whenever she did, she always found the hole led to an exact copy of the room she had just come from, except once. Once it led back to the foyer. She stopped knocking holes in the walls after that. It was on her 50th birthday, although she didn't know it, that the whore finally allowed Aaron the Good Witch to die. She had indeed tied herself to something, a defunct water pipe in a cramped attic crawl space, and waited, delirious from thirst and hunger, for her final triumph over her ancient enemy. She had chosen the room because it had a small circular window in one end, which she could look out of from her perch. This was only the third window Erin had encountered, and she tried to stay very focused on the tiny round world outside, even the vacant lots and summer ditches as she slipped away hour by hour. And that was how she saw herself, and Casey, full grown now, walking side by side across the fields below. The smudge that had usurped her brother held a long column of blue paper under his arm, and a few men in hard hats followed behind the brother and sister team. They looked to be parceling off the lots, for construction. They would be building more houses here soon, Erin knew. It was her brain's last thought before shutting down. Soon, there would be houses, and houses, and houses, and houses, and houses, and houses, and houses. The Blessing. Ritual. A solemn ceremony. A series of actions performed according to a prescribed order. The Night Thing, scraped and slithered across the shingled rooftop, needing desperately to feed. It rattled each exposed rib across the sandpaper surface in hopes of a hollow sound, some crack or ingress. Its belly wheezed like a slackened bellows, an empty pelican maw. In this part of the world, it was cold on a winter night and few had left their windows or a door ajar when the clock struck midnight and everything froze. But the night thing could make its bones jelly for a price. The price was pain. And so it squeezed itself, screaming, between some loose mortar work and filled the empty space behind the building's wall like a pudding. It smelled rat droppings and rust. Scuttling sideways, breathing in the sickly scent of its prey, the thing of the north let its flesh tear on bent nails and staples, heedless. It bled disappointment, hammered at the drywall. Several hours later, it managed to force itself into the ventilation ducts and spilled out into a darkened closet. The door was closed, but the night thing could ooze through underneath if it endured enough torment. It took half a day to recover the fragments of its pain-shattered mind, then slid into the master bedroom. All was still and would be until the ritual was once again complete. Eons of torture stood between the night thing and the scraps of normal time that were all that drove it on. Every precious year of its eternal life cost it millions. Naked, desiccated, it went about its task. It found the place of worship, festooned with lights and gifts for others. Beneath its breath, The creature muttered a brief blessing for the home and family within. It spat the holy words as if they were a curse, no matter. The ritual had been fulfilled, or at least one billionth of it. The Night Thing was free to feed. There were four in the house, an adult and three children. The Night Thing enveloped each frozen body and siphoned something oily and lugubrious from them. It devoured part of them, but felt no satiation. It could not live on human sin alone. Right. A social custom, practice, or customary act. In hopeless observance of the ritual, the night thing sought out the sacraments of the rite. It could eat only that which was left for it, given freely by the home it blessed. It was a futile gesture, so few now believed, yet the lowly thing owed them its servitude whether they held their ends or not. Such was the sad existence of law incarnate, a covenant in flesh, packed of bone. Here, like in so many other corners of the world on this cursed night that would not end, it found nothing the humans were willing to share. Nothing but their sins. It exited the house the same excruciating way it came in, and bounded thirty yards to the next roof on cloven hooves. In the air, it wept. Wept for the loss of faith, the abandonment of the old ways. It wept for the myth of the steeds and helpers, the saccharine pablum that had replaced the truth of its origins in the human mind. It wept for its own hunger, for the simple absence of a plate of cookies and a glass of milk. When it was finally done, when the flow of time was mercifully restored, it would retreat to its icy home and spend a year fattening itself in frenzied anticipation. But it was never enough. The humans spawned like branching trees, and each home required the blessing. Each must be cleansed of their yearly wage of sin before the clocks would start again and matter become movable. Each time it ended like this. Centuries of starvation and pain, trudging alone while the world slept frozen. Not a creature was stirring, and the thing of ice was skin and bones and wanting, the cutting sting of the wind on its puckering flesh. It landed on the next roof with a shudder. Its beard trailed white like a comet's tail, patchy, ragged from malnourishment. Its crown of thorns weighed heavy on its head. Pact. A formal agreement. The night thing bled then, bleeds still, will bleed always. It bleeds as it bled on the cross, feeds on sin as a matter of scriptural fact. Forgive it, Lord. It knows not why it does. It rose from the dead in a cave, dark and alone, and found nothing but this wretched existence waiting. It knows not if this pact is with God or the devil, or whether in the end there's any difference between the two. The night thing knows only holocaust. Sacrifice on the altar of cosmic law. It is a fatted calf that will never stop burning. As long as there is sin, the night thing will absorb it. As long as the heavens sustain, it is the living cost. It feeds on our crumbs in the darkness of eons, time between time. What God would allow such a thing? What parent would conceive such a life for their child? covenant, a formal agreement between humanity and the divine. In home after home, the night thing readies its blessing like a dagger, steals itself to again bestow upon some misbegotten piece of human filth, that which it is so cruelly, cynically, so tragicomically denied. Its lips split around the bitter whisper. Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. Semper Fi Kneel bent down, Bringing his distorted face within inches of Samantha. "'He felt his mouth tighten in a jagged V, "'almost a smile, but for the rankled nose "'and aching tension in his jaw. "'Sweat trickled down from the crew cut he habitually wore "'and stung his eyes. "'His muscles were flexed, "'one hand palm out by Samantha's face, "'the other grasping the offending pair of Velcro shoes. "'You see these?' "'He shook the tiny pink sneakers at his daughter.' I don't work my ass off so I can come home and find this fucking shit in the living room. Samantha looked like a doll, plastic, white. She seemed to be looking through him. Can't you fucking talk! Neil's face filled with blood. Little drops of spittle flew from his mouth and his neck was a column of tensed muscles and engorged veins. Still, Samantha just stared through him. He shook the shoes at her again, bobbed his head toward her, but her eyes were watching something distant and unreal. Slowly, the child's lips mouthed the words, I'm sorry, Daddy. No words came out, but a little squeak escaped from her throat. Neil lowered his hand away from Samantha's face and, straightened, came to attention. He still held the shoes in his hand, one each dangling from his first and second fingers. His arms were exposed by his white muscle shirt and a sheen of yellow sweat glistened on his shoulders, forehead, upper lip. Across his left shoulder, the words Semper Fidelis were tattooed. "'What you do all day,' Neil said to his wife. "'You can't teach her some fucking respect!' Brenda stood at the end of the hall, one hand bunching up the material of her black skirt, the other at her mouth. She was perfectly still, a deer in headlights. "'Huh?' Neil shouted. I'm asking a simple goddamn question. Can't anybody in this house talk? He grinned and raised his arms, shoes dangling. Brenda still said nothing. She had bruises to teach her when to stay quiet. A moment of stillness, of infinite possible opportunity, wandered blindly by. Neil sagged, looked around. A breath leaked out of him like a deflating balloon. The little girl in pink footie pajamas toddled to her mother, reaching up toward her insistently and balancing on her tiptoes. Brenda slowly bent down and scooped Samantha up, keeping her eyes on Neil and her head lowered reverently. Watching Samantha walk away from him, Neil tightened again, instantly, like a snare. He sprang forward, dropping the shoes to the hardwood floor. A rage he had thought was gone surged up stronger than ever, propelling his actions. The momentum of it was terrible. They would answer him. They would pay attention. He would have respect, damn it, in his own damn house. Neil's right hand gripped Brenda around the windpipe, her jawline fitting snugly against the top of his thumb and forefinger. Neil slammed into her with enough momentum to lift her off of her feet, and she struggled to keep Samantha in her arms. Brenda started to make choking noises, eyes wide, but Samantha had gone away again. Oh, now you can talk, said Neil. Now you want to fucking talk. With a shove, he sent her sprawling backwards through the doorframe and into the bedroom. He had thrown her harder than he meant to. Her head hit the floor with an audible crack. She still clutched Samantha, whose halo of silken hair sifted and fell into place again. Brenda kept her eyes closed, but she was awake, Neil decided. She was breathing, and she was making crying noises. She was all right. Fuck, Neil said. He scratched the back of his head with one hand and turned around to face away from the mess. A few steps down the hall, he hit the plaster with his fist. Fuck, he said again. His feet wouldn't keep still. He heard Brenda rising behind him and felt like he would either fall on his knees to apologize or else kill them both then and there. Instead, he just said, I'm going out. He turned back one last time, stood rooted and jabbed a finger at them. This shithole better be fucking ship-shape when I get back, too, or there's gonna be hell to pay. Then his eyelids drooped, his shoulders unknotted and slumped. He wandered out of the hallway, and Brenda waited to hear the front door slam and the F-150 turn over and roar down their gravel driveway. Shhh, she whispered to Samantha, who was not crying. Brenda stood in front of the medicine cabinet, examining the bruises on her neck in the spotted mirror. Purplish stains bloomed like flowers on each side of her throat where Neil had gripped her. The violet corona surrounded cores of sickly yellow and green just the size of Neil's thumb and forefinger. She opened the cabinet, sending the reflection of her face sliding off the surface into oblivion. Her eyes scanned over the cornucopia of pill bottles, the tubes of ointment and paste, but there was nothing that she could take. Neil had medicine, lots of it. Neil had little white triangles for his anxiety and beige and green capsules, red dots that helped his nightmares. Since he'd come home from the war, the number of pill bottles in the cabinet had multiplied steadily, until it was like a carnival of medication, colorful and loud. Samantha's footstep on the white tile was barely audible, but Brenda whirled on her, shutting the cabinet forcefully, embarrassed for a reason she couldn't comprehend. Baby? Brenda smiled and squatted down to Samantha, who took a few more steps into the fluorescent room. Samantha did her up dance, strained toward the ceiling, and stretched her little arms toward Brenda so that it looked like they would pop out of their sockets. Children know what they want, thought Brenda, hefting the little girl and squeezing her to her breast. Come on, she said. She rose and took Samantha out of the bathroom, careful to shut the door securely behind her. She left the light on, It oozed out from under the door. She'd been doing that a lot lately. Samantha lay quiet against Brenda's shoulder while she tugged on the handle of their ancient fridge. It was a 70s transplant, the color of avocado when you leave it out too long. The seal broke with a plastic sound and light bathed Brenda and Samantha. She could hear cars passing outside. It was getting late, but Neil had only been gone for half an hour. That meant he wouldn't be back for a few hours more. She reminded herself of this, to keep from jumping with every car that passed. The glare of their headlights throbbed through the tiny window above the sink, mingled with the same white glare of the refrigerator. Brenda chose a piece of white bread from a half-empty bag, shut the fridge door with her butt, and shoved the bread into a toaster. She was used to doing things one-handed by now. Samantha almost always wanted to be carried these days, a fact that Neil hated. He said Brenda was spoiling her, but she just didn't know how to turn the girl down when she strained like that. Before that, Brenda needed to wear a brace for six weeks because of a sprained wrist she got when Neil twisted her hand after she spilled his dinner all over the living room floor. The marinara sauce stain was still there, but Brenda hid it with a little rug she'd taken out of the bathroom. She bleached the spot almost every day, but it didn't come out, just got paler and more orangish, so she was used to working one-handed toast popped up, and Brenda whisked it onto a white plate, crumbs falling away to the countertop. She swept crumbs into the sink and washed them down the drain, then returned to the fridge for the butter. The whole time, Samantha barely moved. She just laid against Brenda, getting warmer and warmer, a little feral living thing, as if she were feeding off of Brenda's heartbeat. Brenda buttered the toast and returned the tub of spread to the fridge. Then she carried Samantha and the plate over to the low weathered couch and worn coffee table that served as the family room. There was nothing that differentiated the room from the kitchen other than the change from linoleum flooring to off-white carpet. On the table there was a tiny black television. The cable snaked all the way back to an outlet in the wall next to the front door. Brenda switched it on, hit mute, and settled back into the couch. Samantha didn't care for the sound, but she always loved to watch television. There was an infomercial on. The guy with a ridiculous tan was cutting through the hood of a car while people looked on and grinned. Brenda bounced Samantha on her knee and broke off a piece of toast to hand to her. Do you want to watch, Sammy? Samantha stayed turned toward her mother's chest. She looked up at Brenda to where the bruises were. Brenda shoved the bit of toast into her tiny hands. Hungry? Samantha took the toast and began to slowly dissolve it by holding it just inside her mouth. Meanwhile, her eyes never strayed from Brenda's neck. Brenda felt herself start to blush. The man on the TV kept sawing and the people started to clap silently. Brenda felt throbbing in her ears and neck where Sam kept watching her, a thrumming that made her jaw tingle. She felt as if a spotlight were burning on her. Samantha's silent judgment shattered her at the same time that she refused to acknowledge it. Samantha finished her toast. Brenda broke off another piece and handed it to Sam. Then she leaned forward and turned the television off. Then she sat very still for a long time while her daughter eyed her bruises curiously. It was night. It was raining. A violent rainfall. Sheets fat drops that hurled themselves against Neil's windshield as if trying to blind him and run him off the road. The truck stayed right on track though, as if by traveling this exact route four nights a week for six years, Neil had worn a groove in the asphalt that his Ford could follow on its own. The truck knew the way. Neil had the wipers on slow because he liked the way the lights of town looked through the rain, all blurred out and spreading into the air. He drove with his left arm at 12 o'clock on the wheel, his right one, the one he had grabbed Brenda with, lay limp, palm upward on the seat next to him. The truck turned the corner onto the main drag and Neil could suddenly see it, just where it had always been. Down the length of his arm, past his tattoo and the black hair on his forearm and the strong hand, right smack dab in front of him, Fanny's Bar, where he had been a million times, but there was still no one who knew his name. The same faded plywood can-can dancers stared down at him from the bar's facade, the same promising smiles on their flat faces. Neil parked, stepped up onto the Old West-style planked porch, and pushed through the swinging saloon doors into the smoke. The same grooves that had led his truck here led his feet first to his stool at the end of the bar, then to his booth in the back, then to the bathroom for a piss, then back again. He drank whiskey and beer until the dim lights in the bar were as blurred and spread out as those outside the one tiny window. It was crowded that night. A rodeo at the high school had just let out and the din of milling cowboys, truckers, and tourists intruded on Neil's haze. Some college kids in hooded sweatshirts played a drinking game at the table next to his corner booth and every time some token was won or lost they would cheer and one of them would drink. Neil hated them but there were no other open tables in the place. When the stranger slumped down, slid heavily into the red plastic booth across from him, he thought at first that it was Smithy. The man's big stubby hands and sweet cornmeal smell were not Smithy's though. This man wore a faded cap that shaded his eyes. A thick bib of fat made a pillow for his chin. Fuck out of my booth, Neil said. He was talking to Brenda now. No other tables, partner. He said it like that, partner, like some fat, greasy descendant of John Wayne. Neil's hand clenched involuntarily on his beer bottle. This is my table, Neil said. I was here when you came in. The man shifted his mountainous body, but not to get up. In fact, he seemed to settle more firmly into the plush booth, the plastic squeaking as he ground an impression into it. Now don't be inhospitable, friend. The man took off his cap and itched a nest of tawny hair. His eyes were fixed on Neil. I'm gonna go ahead and order, have a drink or two, and I'll be out of your hair. That sound okay, partner? My booth, you fucking hick. No need for language, son. I'm not your son. The fat man's eyes squinted, his chin drooped as he leaned forward and put his elbows on the table. Now, what's eating you, army boy? Neil shrunk back for a moment. He reached up to his shoulder and touched the tattoo there. He could smell the hick's rank breath. He said nothing while the other man flagged down a harried looking waitress, but in the middle of the man's order, he slammed his fist down on the table. I wasn't in the army, Neil said. The point seemed important to him. I was in the Marines, you fucking fat hick. The Marines. The waitress paused, pencil poised above a small white pad. Her apron was smeared with bits of food. She chewed gum. Hey, is there a problem here? She asked. No problem, honey, said the hick. My buddy's just a little drunk is all. You go ahead and grab those drinks. He patted her on the ass as she turned around. She snorted but did not look back. I ain't your buddy, said Neil. Hey, what the fuck is your problem? The hick demanded. He leaned in so that his rotten breath enveloped Neil like a fog. I was in the marines, said Neil. Not the army, he grasped his beer bottle again, and the reflection of his whole arm extended into it, up his hand, his forearm, to the tattoo on his shoulder. Now get the fuck out of my booth. The hick grinned and settled back into the seat again, yet another roll of fat sprouting from beneath his jaw. "'I had a brother in the Marines,' he said. "'Shit work the way he told it.' Neil smashed the bottle on the edge of the table. It was only half empty. Beersud slid across and wet the stranger's lap. Neil's head pounded. He brandished the green, jagged neck, and the light in the room spiraled and fuzzed off of it. When the beer splashed him, the fat man made a sound like a hen drowning, half choke, half exclamation. Everything surrounding the booth had become dark to Neil, everything except the pebble eyes of the hick and the lazy light trapped in his shattered bottle. "'The Marine saved my life,' said Neil. Every inch of the hick's visible flesh was tomato red. Neil was aware of the fact that the bar had become silenced only because his own isolation was no longer being threatened, except by him.' The Marines make it so you can be here, Neil continued, jawing and annoying everyone and sitting on your fat fucking ass, the fat man's eyes narrowed. You're getting yourself into something you might be better off not getting into, friend. The snap of bubblegum announced the arrival of the waitress. Listen, she said, maybe you fellows better head out. Without hesitating, Neil rounded on her with the bottle and jabbed at her midsection. His own stomach churned. He could feel the same unstoppable momentum, the terrible finality of his choice. It was partly relief that washed over him when he felt the meaty arm on the back of his head. Leaning over, the hick had grabbed Neil by the back of his shirt and was pulling him down hard. Neil's head hit the table with an audible crack. He felt wetness and the sting of flesh splitting. Glass worked its way into his cheek as the hick ground his head into the tabletop. He struggled, of course. He remembered all of his hand-to-hand combat training, recalled a hundred throws and pressure points. None of them, however, was very effective when one was drunk, bleeding, and had two stubby paws forcing them down with the weight of a tank. Neil thought his skull would crack, when suddenly the pressure was released and his head was lifted off of the table, dripping beer and blood. A few pieces of glass fell out of his face and bounced off the tabletop. He flailed, hearing his own groans and the heavy breathing of his assailant. Behind that, the sound of the waitress's screams. Behind that, the sound of the bar erupting in shouts and gasps. Then, far behind all of it, behind everything that existed in the present, Neil heard the sounds of machine gun fire, the sounds of sand blowing hard and men telling dirty jokes. Men like Smithy. Men like Jones and Shake. The Hick smashed Neil's face into the oak tabletop and his nose splintered inside of him. Again, and he could feel two teeth jamming back into his mouth. The sounds faded, and lovely darkness reigned. Brenda pulled the puffy blue coat down over Sam's head and upstretched arms. On the bed were three floral print suitcases, two filled with her own things, clothes, photographs, a toothbrush, and the last one with Samantha's clothes and some toys. The pink sneakers sat on top of the pile. Brenda spoke in a manic whisper, her vision going blurry with tears. "'We're going to stay with Aunt Judy in Nashville for a while, honey. Won't that be fun?' Samantha nodded, sticking her thumb in her mouth as soon as the coat was on and her arms were free. The dim lamplight gathered around her as she watched Brenda packing. Daddy? the little girl muttered around her thumb. No, said Brenda quietly. Daddy's not coming. She continued to pack. Some bras, a hairbrush, lipstick, a slipcover Judy had crocheted for her. Everything got piled on. Clothes shoved to the back, unfolded. Brenda stopped when she opened the jewelry box. It was the old wooden one she had kept in her room as a child. It was dark and worn, with flowery carvings skating across its surface. Inside, couched in their little velvet nests, were all of the pieces of jewelry Neil had gotten her. The jade brooch was hers, that she had owned. But the rest the golden turtle earrings, the wrought silver necklace, the elegant alabaster bracelet Neil had brought them all home for her. "'It just seemed so empty,' he had said. It was true that she didn't really wear jewelry. She kept the box for other reasons. But he'd come home with a new one every month or so, until every little space was filled with a glittering treasure. "'I want you to shine like the stars,' he'd said at times like that. Though Brenda had not really worn jewelry before, she wore it when Neil gave it to her. She wanted him to know she appreciated what he'd given. Samantha tugged at Brenda's skirt. She still had her thumb in her mouth. What is it, honey? Samantha made a little noise around her thumb and toddled over to the bed. She started pulling her own suitcase off. Rushing over, Brenda grabbed it from her before it could fall. The lid of the jewelry box fell closed with a soft click. Be careful, baby, Brenda said. You almost spilled. Samantha made a little noise around her thumb, then took it out of her mouth. Aunt Judy, she said. Napville! The bigger suitcase still lay open on the bed like a mouth half full. Brenda glanced at the bedside table clock. Green neon numbers told her that Neil would likely be home in an hour or so. She put her daughter's suitcase back on the bed and opened it wide. Maybe next weekend, she said. We'll go see her next weekend. She started unpacking quickly, her hands animated by a fear that bordered on excitement. It was as if she were unwrapping Christmas presents in the dark, before her parents or sister had awoken. Samantha tugged on Brenda again, her face screwing up. Natville, she said. She elongated the A sound and stomped her little foot in defiance. Then she made the tiny choking and whining noises that always preceded a tantrum. Tears welled up, and her high-pitched cry filled the close room, without hesitating. Without ceasing her rhythm, Brenda gathered up her daughter and started to shake. Stop, Brenda said, lifting Samantha up to meet her eyes. Sam, stop crying. Samantha cried louder, harder. Brenda shook harder. Samantha Kelly, you stop crying this instant. The way she said it, the anger that flashed into her voice, desperate, disgusted her. Samantha seemed to stop crying as if her eyes were faucets. All in pink, the child sniffled, but faintly, and stared back at her mother. Brenda realized her own heart was beating wildly. She was more frightened than she had ever been in her life. Frightened of being caught, frightened of being judged. And all the while, Samantha stared. A new half-understanding bloomed on her wet face, and she became completely quiet again. Because she could think of nothing else to do, Brenda let her down, sent her to her room to bed, and continued to unpack. Neil knew that he shouldn't shoot up. He was slumped in the seat of his truck doing nothing but feeling. Feeling the holes in his cheek, the pulp where his nose had been, and the two bleeding pits where his teeth had been smashed from their sockets. His jeans and muscle shirt were soaking wet, plastered to his body, his army boots waterlogged. He didn't know what time it was, but it was late. Fannie's had been closed when he'd woken up, sitting up against the rubber wheel of his truck with his legs sprawled out in the mud in front of him. They'd left him there, he thought, to die. No fucking respect. No one gave two shits if a man risked his life. Risked it so that they could sit and drink. So they could hoot like idiots while some hickfucker tried to stay on a goddamn horse. He'd been wet and shivering and racked with pain when he'd awoken. He'd vomited. It was still on his clothes. Soaked in and starting to stink in the heat of the cab. There was nothing for it, though. Nothing for the pain, except... Neil's hand shook violently as he reached for the glove box. He knew he shouldn't shoot up. He had to drive home. But the truck had gotten him here, hadn't it? The truck would get him back. Neil fumbled in the box for the needle and the little silver-topped vial. The truck knew the way. And ten minutes later, when it roared into life, and the rain poured, and it pulled out of Fanny's parking lot and onto the main road, It was only habit that kept the truck on course. Neil drove with the wipers off this time, despite the heavy rain that hammered at the windshield. Each drop made a pellet gun noise, snipers firing wave after wave of impotent rounds at Neil's truck. Swerving did nothing to help avoid the onslaught, but the truck swerved nevertheless. Three more miles. No other cars had passed Neil on the road. He drove hunched over the wheel, both hands kneading the rubber until his palms were raw. A double yellow line ran beneath him, sometimes to his left, sometimes to his right, but mostly right between his wheels. A yellow brick road. The headlights followed it, searched it out while Neil's brain spun and sank and sizzled with the drugs. The headlights alit on a green road sign, illuminating it for a split second with the white glare of a muzzle flash. In the heat of that flash, Neil could see men and sand and blood. He could see worlds that no longer existed for him. Words and images crowded his mind and fought for Neil's attention. Each one threatened to shatter the euphoria of the drug coursing through his veins, to turn his blood sour and curdle it, bring him back to his broken nose, his shattered teeth. Neil screwed his eyes shut, let the truck drive, but the hallucinations or memories or whatever they were clawed their way up to the top of his reeling consciousness. There were the men, many faceless at boot camp. Slog, climb, sleep, wake up, eat, repeat, do it, climb, shoot it, go. The massive drill sergeant and the olive green that pervaded. The cold bunks and body-sized trunks at the foot. There were the other men, the buddies, the brothers, the real core. Smithy's deck of battered playing cards, Jones's crooked teeth, Shake's little square glasses and jumping Adam's apple. Getting tattooed together during R&R. Semper Fidelis, always faithful, oorah. The jokes, the talking, the waiting, the sand. Neil pulled to the right as hard as he could on the steering wheel, trying to avoid the first oncoming car he'd seen. The honking and the headlights filled his cab, and he was gone again. Two more miles. Smithy was dead. Jones, Shake, and he had attended the funeral, had watched as the medics packed him away. Unable to cover up the disgrace of his death, they'd left the back of his head open and shattered the front marred by a little puckered entry wound above the right eyebrow. When Neil and the others watched them slip him into his body bag, they all looked at him in the face anyway and pretended they didn't see that embarrassment. It was the least they could do. The parson said some words, and Jones threw Smithy's pack of cards in with him. They'd regretted that, when they'd had nothing to do for the 14 hours of patrol through bombed streets and shadowed buildings. Words forced their way into the front of Neil's memory, phrases learned in the war and since. TBI, a concussion grenade exploding to his left, some suicidal native making a point, being blown aside, ears ringing so loud he couldn't hear his own gunfire as he shot the man down. PTSD, launching a daisy cutter into a group of them, not knowing what they were doing, not sure if they were threatening, but scared. Taking precautions, going into the sun-bleached building afterward, from pure brightness to pure darkness, blistering heat to cave-like cool, seeing them all with legs and feet hacked off, all bleeding and all moaning, all faces, all questioning eyes. The sniper, hot, choking hot, and had been waiting for hours, for years, when the sniper tags him right on the head, right on the goddamn helmet like ringing a bell moving changing positions examining the ash gray helmet the streak of still warm metal where the bullet rubbed against his head at the speed of sound one millimeter saving him from instant death saving him miraculously saving him for what the truck came to rest a good distance away from the house gravel crunching beneath its tires as neil pulled up and killed the engine The car door gave all too willingly, spilling him out onto the driveway to flounder and drag himself upright. The pain was with him again, all of it. He stomped heavily to the thick front door and fumbled for his keys, ignoring the rain that slanted in under the green eaves. When he came in, it was four in the morning by the antique clock on the kitchen wall. The house was dark and quiet, the rain sounding against the walls like a soft drumming. The green army boots he wore made puddles and sloshed with each step. He rounded the corner into the hallway, saw a dim glow of lamplight emanating from the bedroom. When he got there, Brenda was waiting for him. She was sitting on the maid bed, doing nothing but sitting with her hands folded on her lap. As soon as he stalked in, her body went tense and she shot up. ''Oh my God, Neil, what happened?'' she said. Neil said nothing. He just stood grinding his teeth and listing back and forth. Brenda went to the closet where the three floral print suitcases were. They sat empty and open at the back, each item they had contained meticulously put back in its proper place. She pushed them aside and found the first aid kit, pulled out some gauze and bandages. When she tried to touch his bloody and crooked nose, Neil pulled back suddenly and pushed her away. She landed back on the corner of the bed again, her hands in her lap cradling the bandages and gauze. What happened? she asked again. Did you get in a fight? Anxiousness made her voice high and tight. Her cheeks scrunched up and squeezed teardrops from her. And as her husband kneeled to lay his bloodied head in her lap, Brenda's eyes went wide and glassy, an expression so practiced it could have been a tattoo. Jack and Jill Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a peal of laughter. Jack fell down and broke her crown, and Jillian climbed down after. To begin with, everything was black and white. The whole world, the whole universe, all of the birds and trees and sunsets and sunrises and people and places and beautiful colors had been reduced to grayscale. Jillian had never seen color, had no hope of ever seeing it. She had no hopes at all, in fact. Her steel-gray eyes looked out on a black-and-white world with acceptance. They sat nestled in sockets of gimbals and wires and circuits, the miracle of artificial life. She looked out, but no one, no one saw in, for there was nothing to see. No soul raged or yearned behind the eyes of a robot. No dreams took flight in her mind of electronic impulse and whirring servos, the simple lattice of behavioral palettes that made up her awkward imitation of humanity. She danced the human dance, childlike, but thought nothing of it. She lacked the self-consciousness with which to do so. Today, her limited vision did not seem like much of a liability. The worst of the downpour was over, but a weak drizzle persisted even into the afternoon, and the gray clouds were leaden and unbroken. Beneath them sprawled the lazy suburb, shut up against the elements. There were the rows of identical houses one by one, and there the aging schoolyard, where a few determined or unfortunate souls still trudged across the field, or pushed one another on the swings, or lit up cigarettes. And at every corner, gray lurked. It sulked in the churchyards and perched on headstones. It flowed from alleyways and nearly smothered her small figure as she navigated her way to the top of a gentle hill. Jillian picked her path methodically, taking the course which would cause the least wear on her joints, protecting, as she was programmed to do, her owner's investment. She stared out from empty eyes, and an empty world stared back. Meaning, being what you make it, her world had none. She climbed. She wore a young girl's overalls and a bright red plastic slicker to keep out the moisture. Her face was a blank tablet from which almost any emotion could be read, and furthering the effect was the pair of sunglasses she wore to hide the only feature which identified her as inhuman. Humans, she'd learned, found her eyes disturbing. They liked her to look human-like, although she was not. The paradox did not upset her nothing did. Finally, Jillian reached her objective, an abandoned house cresting the hill. It was the last remnant of a decaying block, quietly being reclaimed by weeds. It rose three flights and was in rather good condition considering. The only outward signs to betray its years of disuse were white paint chips scattered about and old glass windows, either destroyed by vandals long ago or glazed over myopically with dust and grime. Jacqueline was not allowed near the house, Jillian would retrieve her. On the second floor, Jillian first heard her quiet sobs. She took them in, each one a simple confirmation of her original hypothesis. She had indeed come back to the roof of this old house, as she had done with increasing frequency over the last several months. Jillian reached the place on the third floor where the ceiling was torn open to the sky. Resting in the hallway below the gap were Jacqueline's school things, an ineffectually undersized backpack and some books huddling against each other. She reached up into the hole, placed a hand on either side of the rim, and easily hoisted herself onto the roof where Jacqueline sat, crying. She, too, was huddled into herself. Stringy black hair hung over pale flesh and cobalt eyes. The warmth she carried around, battery-like, oozed wetly out of them onto her arms, her blue blouse down onto her black mirrored shoes, and disappeared into the atmosphere. Jacqueline, what is the matter? Did you have a bad day at school again? Jack, her usual reply, uttered without looking up. Jillian came closer to her, careful to measure each step, looking for signs of instability in the old tiled roof. She hunched down and placed an arm over Jacqueline, allowing her to nestle against her frame, muffling her sobs. After a few minutes, they began to abate, and Jillian decided to take another stab at consolation. Jack, did you have a bad day at school again? Jacqueline's voice was barely audible from her place burrowed into Jillian's chest, and she felt the moisture from her eyes and the muscles of her jaw working. What else is new? She choked out. We shouldn't be here, Jacqueline, you know that she said gently. This old house is too dangerous. Your mother would be angry. Jacqueline let out a sarcastic grunt and rose to face Jillian. Her face was set, grim. She doesn't care what happens to me. Jillian made no reply, but wiped a tear mechanically from Jacqueline's cheek with a gloved hand. In the great gray sky, a hole was opening, letting the sun through for the first time that day onto the roof where they sat. Jillian's eyes dilated mechanically behind her glasses to regulate the increasing ambient light. Jacqueline squinted, and life glinted from behind her eyelashes. Love and rage shone out through them, blue and strong. Because meaning is what you make it, the world she looked out on was saturated with it, full of color. Sometimes, things seemed so meaningful she couldn't take it. She felt like dissolving. Jack raised her head and looked at Jill directly. She was beautiful, all young people are. A flicker of a smile played across her lips, another first that day. Suddenly, she said, Jill, take your glasses off, I want to see you. Can't you see me now? She was confused by the question. I want to see your eyes. Take them off, please. She considered the idea. She usually wouldn't humor the change of subject, but Jillian's sudden shift in mood had thrown her off. Besides, no one was around to be made uncomfortable by her appearance, and Jacqueline had seen them before. Slowly, she took her sunglasses off and put them in her pocket. Beneath, chrome void bent and reflected the colorful light. Her eyes were like burnt-out sockets, tunneling deeply into Jillian's head. At the back, a pair of camera lenses dilated and blinked out of sync, click-clack. The effect was of some reclusive animal, peering timidly out of its warren. Jacqueline stared for a moment, bemused, then raised her hand toward her face. She shied away, but Jacqueline persisted and laid her fingers on the rim of one of her eyes. Slowly, she moved the hand to caress her cheek, ran her thumb over the hole. You are interfering with my depth perception, Jacqueline. She laughed. Jillian. She took her hand away, beaming now. Why do you think they made you a girl? Jillian did not understand the question. It was the gender which I was assigned. Yeah, said Jack. Me too. Her facial expression was one Jillian had never seen before. She couldn't place it in her mind, but she was experiencing some strong emotion with which Jillian was vastly unfamiliar. Her mood swings, Jillian's exposed face, this sudden metamorphosis into something alien. It comprised a behavioral challenge. In her head, platinum wiring and synapses grappled to make sense of it, cobbled together a next course of action from the limited set of behaviors available. Before she could decide what to do, Jacqueline preempted any such action with one of her own. Quickly, brusquely, with the graceless fervor of a passionate amateur, she pulled Jillian into a kiss. It was short, but wet. She had parted her lips ever so slightly. She pulled away, and now looked at her as if trying to communicate. Tell her something without words. Jillian, quite literally, could not imagine what. It was clear to her that the child was expressing, in some way, extreme desire. She could not decide what for, but the way she bit her lower lip, the way her freckled brow was knit, the way she looked at her, like an equal, a flicker, gone. Jillian had no programming to address such a situation. She was a robot humans used to mind their children, and she could not be more than that. Not even the hope of something more, or the ability to communicate that hopelessness to a young woman finding herself she pondered. A flicker of sensation. Such a thing had never happened to Jillian. Perhaps some malfunction? As she sat, Jacqueline looked at her and her expression seemed to melt. Sour. In the oppressive silence, even the afternoon drizzle had stopped. Jack felt a heavy weight in her stomach, dragging her down. She stared at her trusted companion, this one that had grown with her, Watched over her since before she could remember. Cared for her more than anyone else. But found nothing. Too much nothing. A dizzying void. She searched those eyes, but only the click-clack of little lenses spoke back. A fucking mannequin. I'm sorry I did that, Jill. She said it blankly. She seemed to choke on it. Her eyes were wide so that Gillian could see white all the way around them. She was breathing hard, deeply. It's quite all right, Jacqueline, she replied with a newfound equanimity. Jacqueline's face now spoke of guilt, shame, and sorrow, emotions with which she was familiar. Now, she thought, something could be done. The child could be safely corralled, their surge of emotion allowed to play out, perhaps a guided meditation later in the day. Still, that flicker... Jill filed a record of the neural event away to be analyzed more thoroughly at an appropriate time. For now, she decided, she must get Jacqueline home as soon as possible. Don't you think, she asked, it is getting rather late? We should hurry to be home before sunset. Indeed, the sun hung low in the blanketed sky. Just its rim could be seen peeping out of the bottom of the hole in the clouds that overlooked the ancient house. Jacqueline did not look up but instead seemed to have collapsed again. Her shoulders shook as if with tears, but none came. It may have been laughter. Jacqueline, I must insist that we leave now. My name is Jack. Jack, she relented. We really must be going. Your mother will be very worried. Jack stood slowly, shaking. Jillian rose as well and turned to climb down into the house. As she squatted by the open hole, she heard Jacqueline's voice, though not her words, and turned again to look at her. The child was standing at the edge of the roof, the front of her shoes off the ledge. Jacqueline, you can't get down that way. It's too dangerous. Please follow me. Jack didn't look up, only repeated what she had said. I love you, Jill. Jack, I don't understand. Now she did look. Tears stood out again in her red eyes. That expression was there, Jill saw. She wanted something, but what? If she didn't know what it was, she couldn't give it to her. Jill waited for her to act. "'I know,' she said. Then her head described a semicircle in the air, as she allowed herself to tumble forward off the edge of the roof. Seeing instantly that she could not stop her, Jillian didn't bother to try— she must conserve her motion, she remembered. Prevent decay, protect her employer's investment. Jack fell, and Gillian heard the impact, sickly wet below. The sound was information, which Gillian used to build a picture of the world. She assembled these perceptions into thought, a working model of reality from which to derive a course of action. In this case, the reality was Jacqueline had just fallen four stories onto a rocky incline. She was certainly badly injured, most likely dead or dying. Gillian's responsibility in such an instance was to ascertain the child's condition and report it to the nearest authority, then her parents. Good, she thought, something to do, something clear. After climbing back down into the third floor of the house, Gillian stood for a moment to replace her sunglasses. Looking up through the hole in the roof, she saw that the clouds had shifted The sun now gazed down directly through them onto her face and shoulders. The roof hole stared back, blind eye for a blind eye, at the sun above. Jillian, oblivious, gathered Jacqueline's things and went to inspect the body. My story needs no title. I am called Emil Prudznik. I am Polish. I am a Jew. I am writing this in German which is not my written language. I do speak it. I beg your indulgence of grammatical errors. I would like you to guess my profession. I wonder if you can. I will give you some clues. I heard once of a class of students who paid close attention whenever their professor stood near a certain waste basket. I understand that in time this caused their teacher to enjoy being near the basket, not knowing why. I understand that eventually, to encourage the attention of his students, this professor then took to turning it upside down and standing on the basket to lecture. I have heard of Pavlov's dogs. I was taken here to Chelmo camp when I was 39. I am 41 now. I have heard it called a concentration camp. I took this to heart. I concentrated. I concentrated on looking healthy when I came off the trains and into the line. I concentrated on looking at the soldiers with confusion, not malice. I suspected they might spare those who didn't accuse them with a gaze. I thought even monsters must not like to be judged. I think I was right. I was sent to work instead of to the gas chambers. I dug corpses and heaped ashes. I knew what I was doing. I'd heard the stories. I starved and watched others starve. I watched many people die. I did not die. I made jokes. I lightened the mood. I made friends of guards, impossible as it seems. I got special favors. I was given scraps. I didn't complain. I made them feel forgiven. I told them I had been a barber. I didn't make a big deal of it. I gave my scraps away. I traded them for a finger of pomade. I traded them for a rusty pair of shears. I kept my hair immaculate. I cut a dashing figure among the corpses. I kept a twinkle in my hollowed eyes. I remarked upon the comforts of a hygiene regimen even in times of great stress. I was asked to trim a beard here and there. I was asked to take a little off the top. I obliged. I hoped they would recommend me to others. I hoped aloud that word would get around. I told them it made me feel useful. I was 40 when the Commandant first let me cut him. I am 41 now. I gave him a trim in the barracks and the guards around. I was very cautious. I spoke in pleasantries. I did a good job. I didn't have to heap ashes anymore. I was the Commandant's barber. I went on that way for many months. I murmured to him as I worked, like barbers do. I was lucky he didn't care to speak to me. I had room to work. I talked about the comforts of regular hygiene. I talked about a hot lather and a good shave, so much more than a simple trim. I talked about freshness and savoring a moment of solitude amidst chaos, and didn't one deserve it now and then? I was invited into the Commandant's home within two months. I was allowed alone with him within three. I came once a week to shave him in his office, with the big window facing the yard and the wire fence and the road out of Chelmo. I knew the guards were just outside. I could not open the window on my own. I put freedom out of my mind. I told myself comfort was enough. I changed what I murmured about instead. I murmured about the joy of music. I lamented the lack of opera in my life. I commended Wagner despite our differences. I complained about the stuffy air and looked out the closed window. I said the commandant deserved better. I was fortunate that he agreed but I worked at it too. I made it a habit, for one, to hold the razor a bit too tightly. I eased up when we agreed. I gave him the smoothest shave of his life. I made the difference so slight that he wouldn't note it consciously. I made it his little reward when he behaved. I took things so slowly. I got him to open the window after six more weeks. I took five months to work up the courage. I am 41 now. I am writing this on a paper in the Commandant's office. I will leave it on his desk to be found. I came to shave him today. I set the guards at ease. I did not seem a threat. I worked up a hot lather while Commandant Verth opened the window. I stropped my razor while Commandant Verth put on opera. I composed this letter in my head while Commandant Wirth took off his jacket and hat. I told him this would avoid getting hair on his uniform, and he grunted in his seat. I told him, here we go. I slashed his throat wide open from ear to ear, and he made a hissing sound through the open space. I didn't enjoy it, but I am proud to have faced my fears. I'm pleased the opera seems to have drowned out the noise. I have donned the Commandant's cap and jacket, I am about to climb out the window. I do not know if I will make it past the gates. I do not know if I will survive this war. I only know that Commandant Werth will not. I hope that you who read this understand how feeble is your grasp. I hope you know your end is coming soon. I hope you see the hate in the stroke of my razor. We were never friends. Have you guessed my occupation? I was a judge. Emil Prochnik. The Queen, The Duke, and Their Shadows. Time was getting short, Sam could sense it. He felt the heat like a living thing in the air, crouched, another of the jungle's innumerable predators. Sweat clung to his bristled mustache and glistened on his bulging arms, which sprouted at the shoulders from a filthy khaki vest. He was short of breath often now, and hunger pangs had become a familiar presence. They were comforting in a way, he thought. As long as he was hungry, he knew he was still alive. Sam pulled back a screen of bamboo, each stubborn shoot more than an inch in diameter, and held it there, bicep tensed. A chipped machete dangled in his right hand, and he used it to motion Lorelei through the opening. Lorelei seemed completely unaffected by the heat, or even by the peril of their situation. As she bunched the loose layers of her white chiffon gown about her waist and stepped past Sam, she smiled widely at him. Her brow was free of sweat, her eyes blue and sparkling. Even her dress looked as it had the moment they crash-landed on the island so many months ago. This is fun, she said. Sam scowled. Look, he said, lifting his right arm and pointing to a place a few dozen yards in front of them. There barring their path in both directions as far as either could see was the real source of the heat a lava flow sam muttered this mountain must be a volcano oh no said lorelei gravely maybe we should go back sam squinted and pondered the suggestion while the lava rumbled in the distance Lorelei thought turning back was a very sensible plan. After all, the two had been surviving for months on the island. Examining the dense foliage around them, she could see at least half a dozen edible flowers and berries. The tissue-thin petals that drooped from the canopy above could be brewed into a nutritious, if somewhat bitter, herbal tea. The little green shoots that stuck out of the ground like porcupine spines dripped sweet milk when they were split. They could veritably gorge themselves on the clumps of round red berries that seemed to sprout from bushes by the handful. Just then, a toad squirmed from underneath a rock by Lorelei's feet. She squealed in delight. It was wet and dark green, with ribbons of black like swamp water running down its back. Its bulbous eyes rolled around, trying to look at the whole jungle all at once. Look! screamed Lorelei. She squatted down, forgetting to bunch up the hem of her dress, which brushed the muddy ground. Sam turned on his heel and knelt down as soon as he saw the toad. We can eat this, said Lorelei. The toad looked at her and hopped once towards the bamboo stand. No, said Sam. Look closer. See the horns and the red skulls on his belly? This is a really poisonous frog. Lorelai examined the toad more closely, and sure enough, spotted tiny red skulls like pieces of confetti laminated onto the toad's slimy underbelly. His weird, twisted horns ran along the ocular ridge of his skull like eyebrows before spiraling off in deadly-looking points. If we ate that, said Sam, shooing the toad away with his hiking boot, we'd swell up and start bleeding pus out of all of the holes in our faces. Then we'd explode like a big zit. Wow, said Lorelai. She stared with wide eyes as the toad hopped lazily away. No, Sam continued. We'll have to cross. That's the only place on the island where there's still good food to eat. And plus, there might be a radio we can use. Lorelei felt a trill of fear run through her body at the prospect of crossing the deadly lava flow. Should they really do it? She smiled again, deciding, and as she did, the drooping flowers and little green shoots and red berries all wilted and shriveled at once from the heat, becoming little more than hard brown clods of dried muck stuck to the trees. They really would have to cross now, thought Lorelei, and lifted the muddy hem of her dress. All right, she said, blowing air out in a burst. Let's go. Sam let one corner of his mouth inch upward on his face, but immediately regained his stoic composure. When he spoke, he tried to infuse his voice with gravel, like the voice of the man who does movie previews. He reached out one rugged hand, a mass of puckered scars and black grime. "'Don't worry,' he said. "'I'll protect you.' She took it gingerly, with the tips of her manicured fingers, and let him lead her into the invisible blaze. With every step they took, they could feel the heat thicken and solidify in the air. The ground beneath their feet went from a lush jungle floor to sparse yellow grass to a shelf of blackened rock. Several times, Sam helped Lorelei hop over fissures where the rock had heated and split. The mountain in front of them became warped with the smoke. It whirled and bulged grotesquely in the sky. It's so hot, said Lorelei when they reached the edge of the flow. The river of lava was at least five yards across, wider than it had looked from a distance. There, said Sam, wincing from the billowing heat. We can cross there. He pointed to a broken line of boulders peeking up from the rumbling lava. Each was blasted black with heat, each rounded like the backs of an impossibly slow, impossibly enduring family of turtles. Lorelei nodded once, and they picked their way as close as they could get to the first boulder. It was only about four feet away, but the intense heat and smoothness of the rock made it a frightening jump. Sam went first, taking a few steps back, then rushing forward and leaping, swinging his arms in perfect counterweight to his body. He landed in a squat, looking back at Lorelei. Come on, he said. He had to raise his voice to be heard over the constant rumbling of the flowing rock. Lorelei stared down into the magma. It glowed cherry red, bathing everything with gaudy malevolence. She shivered and squatted down at the edge of the cliff. A yellow bubble burst just a few feet below her. She reached out an arm. Grab me, pull me over, she said. It's too far, said Sam, but he reached out his arm nonetheless. Lorelei took a deep breath and felt the hot air inside of her. Holding it in, she stood up straight, held up her dress, and hopped toward the boulder. She landed at an angle and immediately lost her balance. One of her arms stuck straight out into the air and started turning like a propeller. She screamed and Sam lunged forward, grabbing her around the waist. For the barest of moments, she was sure both of them were going to plunge into the river of fire. Then she felt her weight slowly pull back toward the center of the rock and regained her feet. Sam let her go. He said, that was a close one. I saved you. "'I would have made it,' she said. "'She could still feel her legs quaking. "'All right,' said Sam. "'Then you can go first this time.' Lorelai hadn't expected that. Sam leveled a smirk at her, and she felt a new heat well up inside of her. She just stuck her tongue out at him. "'It's just a stupid jump,' she said. "'I can make it.' "'Try it,' said Sam. The next boulder was closer than the first had been from the shore, but its peak was at least two feet higher." Lorelei looked over at Sagely and told herself how easy it would be. "'Well, go on,' said Sam behind her. "'Don't rush me,' she snapped. She licked her finger and stuck it in the air, because she had seen someone do that on television once. She felt the hot wind dry her finger out almost immediately. "'Okay,' she said. "'I'm going.' She took a small step backwards, bumping into Sam. Then, with all her might, she heaved herself out away from the rock and up— Let go of her dress, focusing instead on grabbing a hold of the next boulder. She was in the air. She swam through the heat. Sam watched, grinning. He could already tell she wasn't gonna make it. When she reached the next rock, she was too low and her belly slapped into the hard surface. She let out a grunt, and her hands scrabbled desperately on top of the boulder, trying to get a grip. She slid down the rough face, her dress pulling up around her waist, and a sharp pain in her stomach taking her breath away. She whined, the beginnings of a sob, but Sam couldn't hear her over his own laughter. "'I told you so!' he shouted, waving his machete around. Lorelai fell, and the lava sucked her in with a soft plop noise. She cried when she hit the surface— her dress bursting into long blades of flame. A hiss rose, and a terrible smell, as she both sank into the magma and was devoured by it. Her skin charred and hardened like a burnt marshmallow, becoming black and starting to crack like the rock shelf she reached vainly toward. Seams and then splits spiderwebbed up her throat and onto her contorted face. She looked like a smashed black windshield. Then an eddy in the flow sucked her deeper, and she disappeared almost entirely. In the end, all that remained was her forearm, dripping globs of melted fat that hissed and skittered across the surface of the lava, trailing white smoke. The skeleton revealed. Her wrist and then her hand sank into the fire and were gone. Sam stomped, laughing. Tears stood out in his eyes. "'Told you so! Told you so!' he chanted, hopping up and down on his perch." Lorelei stood up, now a fired mass of bone, burnt flesh, and tattered dress, thigh-deep in the lava. Shut up, she yelled. She was sobbing, her skeleton face twisted and clenched. Her cheekbones were wet with tears and her stomach ached from hitting the stone. When Sam saw that she really was crying, he stopped dancing. He got suddenly nervous, remembering the last time he had made Lorelei cry and the endless hours spent locked in a dingy cell. He tried to talk deep, like his father. "'Don't be a brat, Lorelai,' he said, hopping down into the lava. "'You're fine.' "'I hurt my tummy,' she said. "'You said you would protect me, stupid!' Sam let his machete drop from his hand and get eaten by fire. He bent down so that his face was inches from hers. "'Let me see,' he said. "'No,' shouted Lorelai. "'You'll just make it worse.' "'Let me see,' he said again and reached for her dress. "'Don't be a brat. It's probably nothing.' Lorelei sniffed and looked at him, then lifted her gown up, revealing a small red patch on her belly. Sam gasped. "'Uh-oh,' he said. "'What?' said Lorelei. "'This is pretty bad. "'It looks like when you went in the lava you got a sickness from it. "'Look, you've got a rash.' "'He pointed to her tummy and Lorelei bent her neck to see. "'If you don't get the cure fast,' he said.' It could spread. That's stupid, said Lorelei. Nuh-uh, said Sam, and only I have the cure. I brought it in my pocket in case this happened. Lorelei stared at Sam in the eyes. The lava flowed around them. I don't believe you, she said. Show me. Then Sam exploded. Every part of him burst at once, as if he had been made of water balloons all along and just now been stuck with a pin. A Sam sized blob of bright red paint was all that existed where he once had been. You have to catch me first, he shouted, and the red smear streaked away across the canvas. Lorelei turned herself into a splash of blue paint and raced after him, the pain in her stomach already forgotten. Sam left streaks of himself as he raced back onto the shore and rocketed into the stand of pine trees, each represented by a vertical blur of brown and green, a single mad stab of the brush. His scent and sounds billowed out behind him on a crest of red and drenched the fabric wherever he went. Lorelai tumbled after him as quick as she could, staining his trail a twilight purple. Both of them bled out into the surrounding space. Lorelei looked down as she ran, watching the colors fall under her massive blue. Her black shoes left puddles with every step. The ground was a wash of deep ochres, brilliant greens, and lively yellows, all moving too fast to be caught. She looked up just in time to see Sam bank off of a tree, leaving it splattered red, and run up the slant of a gray trapezoid. He vaulted off the peak, whooping, and a million brown birds blossomed from the trees. She watched them flap their wings in slow motion, rising into the blue gradient at the top of the painting. Each left a brown smudge as it flew, an afterimage at every step, so that Lorelei could see a million confused tubes of feathers and feet rising from the tree, burrowing into the sky. The tips of the bird's wings etched slow, rolling waves in the air. By the time she started looking for Sam again, he was miles away. How could she have let herself be distracted so easily? Sam was just a red speck, darting through the bars of the forest, blinking on and off as it zoomed this way and that, like a dizzy shooting star. She had to catch him. Lorelai felt around her for the grain of the canvas, found it, and tugged. It ruffled, and she got a handful of the forest and yanked as hard as she could. With a great ripping sound, the canvas split. She tumbled through, landing on her back at Sam's feet, laughing and heaving with exhaustion. Caught you, she said. Give me the cure. Sam looked down at her, his hands on his knees as he too struggled to catch his breath. Hold on, he said, gasping. Lorelai lay in the grass for a while, feeling the dampness on her back. The mass of birds orbited above her head and landed again on their favorite tree. Other pines fringed the edges of her vision like spears. Finally, Sam put on his white doctor's coat and pulled the stethoscope from his satchel. He had a thick brow that furrowed as he peered into her eyes and nose. She giggled the whole time, and he kept telling her how serious it was. With supreme effort, she forced herself to lay patiently on the cold metal table while he poked and prodded her, listened to her heart, made her cough, and finally examined the red patch on her stomach. "'I see, I see,' he muttered, making a note on a big yellow pad. "'What is it?' she asked. "'It looks like you have a bad scrape,' he said, furrowing his brow again. "'But with the right medicines, I think you could live a normal life. "'Just give me the cure already.' "'Fine,' Sam said, pulling a green orb out of his satchel. "'The orb glowed faintly and was the size of an ostrich egg.' Sam cracked it above her bare stomach, and a glowing green liquid poured out like syrup onto her. All better, she said, getting up off the table. Now it's time for the tea party, Sam groaned. You promised, said Lorelai, already walking toward the distant hilltop. Sam turned himself into a hedgehog for a while, snuffling in the dirt and following faint scent trails, rolling in the warm sun. When he saw Lorelai had finished setting up and that guests were arriving, he reluctantly changed back into a human, donned an appropriate outfit, and trudged up the hillside toward the palace. The palace itself was a huge crystal affair, capping the hill and overlooking a large swath of forest. It gleamed like a beacon to anyone within the kingdom, and it was there that Queen Lorelai held not only court, but also her famous luncheons. Duke Sam, who was also the royal huntsman, arrived in his finest military dress. A curved saber hung at his side, and epaulets supported gold tassels as thick as rope. He wore a blue jacket with gold piping and thick black boots that shone with polish. The other guests were similarly arrayed. Lady Anne wore a fabulous pink taffeta gown, complete with diamond studs in the train, and Floppy had on his furry cap and a light gray coat that matched his trimmed and waxed whiskers. Only Mr. Cat, the old tiger, looked a bit worn, with one ear missing and an eye hanging on by a single thread. He tended to just sit and listen, stretching his paws and sticking his claws in and out like old cats do. Each of them sat in their own velvet throne, and each had their own silver platter and cup in front of them. But none of them, not one, rivaled the beauty of the queen as she drifted to the head of the big oak table. Queen Lorelei was a vision in silver and pale green. Her seafoam dress ballooned out at the waist and shimmered with embedded gems and sewn-in sequins. Silk and lace trimmed the shoulders and throat. Her hair rose to incredible heights, carved into what can only be described as the happy marriage of both art and engineering. Her head held high in the air, nose slightly upturned, She moved as if she were on wheels, silently wafting to her seat and smiling a faint blessing as she surveyed her guests. Good afternoon, everyone. The tea passed quickly for some, slowly for others. When it came time to clear the dishes, the sun had slipped over the peak of the sky and was beginning to acquiesce to gravity. Sam suggested a royal hunt to pass the time until evening, and Queen Lorelai agreed, on the condition that she chose what they hunted. When they found the unicorn sometime later, it was drinking from a crystal pool. Its white flanks shivered as it took gulps of the glimmering water. Sam drew back his longbow, but when he fired the stiff arrow, Lorelai changed it into a magic arrow that only captured the unicorn. Instead of darting away in fear or limping to its death, the struck beast carefully lowered itself to the ground, ready for passengers. Then Sam was the unicorn and Lorelei the rider. She held on tight as he bucked her through the forest, taking leaps as high as the sinking sun and piercing the orange sky with his pearlescent horn. The sky bled violet and bruised purple. Sam's white hair bristled every time he leapt, and Lorelai couldn't keep from squealing, first with fear, then with sheer exhilaration. She dug her heels into his sides and he snorted loudly, rearing up on hind legs and spinning around. Lorelai struggled to stay on his back, but her hands slipped from his mane and she flew off of him, landing softly in the grass. When she looked up, still grinning, Sam had a rifle leveled at her face. I'll give you a head start, enemy he said. His black combat outfit and Kevlar made him a shadow against the twilight, and the camouflage paint on his face made his scowl look even crueler. Lorelai fumbled for the silver revolver in her skirt pocket. It seemed to take an eternity to get her hand inside. Finally, grasping the gun, she leapt to her feet, aiming the barrel directly at Sam's face. Pow, shouted Sam. A bullet tore through the air, and Lorelai screamed and dove behind a tree. "'Got you!' he yelled, holding his gun up. "'Nuh-uh!' said Lorelai. She stuck her revolver around the trunk and fired off a few rounds. "'I got you!' "'I've got a bulletproof vest!' said Sam. "'Besides, you're already dead!' "'I have bulletproof too!' said Lorelei, still keeping her back to the tree bark. "'I shot you in the head!' came Sam's reply. "'I have bulletproof head!' said Lorelai. "'That's stupid!' said Sam." Without saying anything, Lorelei swiveled back into the open. Her hunch had been right. Sam had his rifle lowered. Pow! 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 The revolver cylinder turned and spit out three no-dodge killers. The muzzle flash lit up the dusk. The sound was tremendous. Lorelei could feel the violent explosions pushing the gun into her palm. RICOCHET! yelled Sam through the haze of acrid smoke and gunpowder. Before Lorelai could say another word in protest, they both heard a sound that made them drop their weapons into the smoke. Their names rang out, clear notes in the evening air. Looking toward the sound, they could see the yellow rectangle of light in the distance, their beacon home. Sam and Lorelai looked at each other. Night rose suddenly from the ground like octopus ink, chilling them, turning the sky to stars. The trees changed their colors all at once, too. The smells turned to night smells. Together, their noses tingled with the cold. Each felt the emptiness in their stomachs. There, the beacon shone, calling their names again, long and loud. Race you, said Lorelei, and she was off, with Sam in hot pursuit. They burst from the tree line and sped toward the light, the door in the house at the bottom of the hill. Sam became a spaceship. His arms hardened into plexiglass and ceramic, outstretched, jet boosters firing from behind him in a blaze. His eyes widened into a viewplate and his nose grew into a red cone. He careened left in a wide arc, locked into an eccentric orbit that would send him inevitably tumbling through the doorway. Over his right wing, Lorelei grew red feathers as she ran. They shot out of her skin until they swallowed her, crimson hues that defied the dark. She flapped her wings once, twice, then soared toward the light. They flew into the house, and the door shut. Only a little light seeped out under the frame, and eventually this too was extinguished. Later, Sam and Lorelei slept. But outside their room, the silent shadows they had cast that day awoke, and one by one gathered together at the edge of the woods. Then they started to grow, They grew round eyes and big bodies. The trees whispered and swayed with each of their gargantuan breaths. They became dark gods thronging the sky, jostling one another as they bent down toward the tiny house, listening intently to the dreams that rose all night from the little chimney like blue smoke, remembering and rehearsing their parts for tomorrow. The End Matthew scooped two lumps of cold, orange deliciousness into a pair of ceramic bowls on the kitchen counter. The sherbet cooled in his metal scoop, bowing before the distorted reflection of his face on the surface. It was a color not found in nature, but nonetheless inviting. He plopped the ice cream into small, yolk-yellow bowls Bahati and Asha had given May and he as a wedding present. They were valuable. Real ceramic was hard to come by, and Matthew and May only used them on special occasions. Ice cream for breakfast? May stood on the threshold between the kitchen and bedroom, wearing a black silk robe that made her an ink stain on the paper whiteness of their apartment. It's the end of the universe, he said, pushing her bowl to the edge of the faux granite counter. I don't think anyone will mind. May stepped down into their sunken living area, felt the grass floor embrace her. The light in the apartment was pale and yellow, a simulated dawn that flowed out of a million microscopic filaments embedded in the walls. The stool in front of the kitchen counter sank ever so slightly into the grass as May sat. She laid a hand on her swollen belly. It felt silk and black. I smell eggs, she said, and all the thoughts of life and death she had ever thought before blossomed somewhere in her head and stomped off down a dark jungle path. Matthew made an affirmative noise around the ice cream-filled spoon in his mouth. He took the spoon out. Delicious, he said. Then, yep, eggs and ice cream. He looked at May and smiled without his eyes, so that she could tell he was only smiling to get her to smile. So she smiled. While they ate, they finished the chess game they had left saved the night before. Little animated pieces moved about at their commands hovering above the countertop. Your move, May would say, taking a bite of her omelet and dipping it in sherbet. You're losing it, she would say, and Matthew would believe her. He'd get worked up and make stupid mistakes, feeling embarrassed and jealous about the whole thing. May won, and Matthew insisted on another game. She won that, too. Matthew switched the chessboard off. May's stomach was fuller than ever. The baby now shared residence with two helpings of orange sherbet and a decent, though slightly burnt, machaca omelet. She felt the fetus kick a little in protest or in thanks. She and Matthew sat in front of the vid screen in their living room. It was turned off, a black mirror. The light in the room was phasing into a clear daylight, and the temperature raised accordingly, melting the carton of ice cream that Matthew hadn't bothered to put back in the freezer. He had his arm around his wife and ran his long fingers through her wavy hair. "'I love you,' he said, and she said that she loved him too. "'Do you want to open the windows?' he asked. He didn't want to, but felt as if he should. It was the thing to see, after all. I don't know, she said, kind of like the sun. Matthew kissed her on the cheek, relieved. Do you want me to turn on the vid screen? Think there'll be anything on? Don't know. Probably not, she said. Then she laughed for no reason other than that she wanted to hear a laugh today, and she worried she may not get another opportunity. Matthew forced a chuckle too, pressed the contact that turned the vid screen on. That's not why I laughed, said May as Matthew sat back down. You didn't have to do it. It's all right," he said. I wanted to. I'm kind of freaking out. Don't freak out, said May. She draped herself over him and laid her head on his shoulder as if to smother the flame of his rising panic. There was nothing on. Every channel was a blank feed, broadcasting only their radioactive green DNS numbers, a foot high on a black background. Matthew switched the vid screen off again. May stood and flexed her lower back. She had dull pains, as she always had in the morning. The baby had caused innumerable inconveniences like that. Morning sickness, headaches, incontinence, the inability to bend at the waist. All that, thought May, and she would never even get to meet the little person inside of her. All she would ever know of their child was what she knew of it now. That it was alive and hungry, that it wanted to live. That was enough, she decided, having no other choice. Matthew had donned his work outfit that day. A pair of khaki slacks, a white button-up shirt, and bare feet. He habitually wore almost the same outfit every day, even though he worked from a home office. It was the one ritual he had allowed himself to cling to and keep intact, despite the coming end. Smiling with his eyes this time, Matthew wrapped his long arms around May and ran fists up and down the small of her back, working out the kinks wherever he found them. "'Where does it hurt?' he said, and May could very distinctly smell the morning's breakfast on his breath and his familiar scent beneath. "'Everywhere.' Oh, he cooed. I'm sorry. He hugged her, and she let herself fall against his chest. Matthew was a systems administrator on the station. He took a great deal of pleasure in his job, which had consisted of blocking, routing, and rerouting the mighty data streams that rocketed back and forth through the station's mainframe. At his terminal, Matthew enjoyed a music collection that spanned thousands of years and an equal number of artists, both human and AI. Every inch of the embedded circuitry which controlled the lighting, temperature, humidity, and atmospheric composition of Matthew and May's apartment had been modded, tweaked, and perfected by him over the course of three years. He was a handyman and a homebody. Matthew saw his life as being made up of an infinite number of equally important details, all snugly fit together to form a whole picture, like pieces in a jigsaw puzzle. In his puzzle, there were only two pieces that were bigger than all the others, One was in his arms, and the other was waiting patiently outside the window. None of this mattered anymore. Let's open the windows, he said, even though he didn't want them opened. May moaned into his chest. She knew what Matthew was doing, getting himself worked up needlessly. She lifted her head and said, Don't. The sun is fine. Matthew hugged May tighter. A wave of utter despair washed over him then, an abyss rushing upwards, For a moment, he didn't know who or what he was. He was simply panic, incoherent resentment at the unfairness of what? Everything, nothing. Waves of grief and rage were subsumed in a burning cold numbness that froze the inside of his skull and threatened to crack it like the spring thaw. But it passed, as everything does. The feeling had lasted about six seconds. I want to open them, he said. His voice was far away. I think it's good to. May didn't say anything this time, so Matthew crossed the room to the eggshell wall that comprised one side of their living space. The wall glowed faintly yellow where the fiber optic filaments had been installed. A billion lights at the end of a billion tunnels, enough false hope for all. May turned away as Matthew passed his hand over an inset panel. She walked to the kitchen counter and sat down on her stool while the wall slid up into the ceiling with startling grace and speed. She tipped the ice cream carton toward her. It was almost gone and what was left had turned into orange soup. She lifted Matthew's spoon from the bowl he hadn't cleared and ate some of the soup, feeling a comfortable queasiness coming on. Matthew stared out the window which was a vast and perfectly translucent sheet of plastic which took up the whole side of their connected living room and kitchen. Behind it, there was nothing but the limitless black of space. No stars twinkled or shone in any corner of the sky. No nebulae or satellites ruined the pureness of the void there. There was nothing on but the empty feet of a dead universe, lacking even the green DNS numbers in the corner. The only thing to break the monotony was the faintest outline of Matthew's own dim reflection in the bowed surface, a black mirror. Matthew imagined changing the channel in his head, but the same thing was on every station. He did that for ten minutes while May polished off the ice cream. Even universes wind down, and this one's stars had left the stage long ago, the embers of their ambient heat bowing to entropy's demands until, finally, Even in the cocoon of a space station, the power must fail, and the cosmic pocket watch mark its final second and be still. Don't get worked up, she said. I'm just looking, he said. It looks how it's always looked. But it's different. Even if we can't see it in the darkness, it's coming. He couldn't help it. His hands were shaking. He stared ever deeper into the black, looking for something, anything, a reason to believe in one more day. He jumped when the windows suddenly closed again. May, he said. What, she said. Were you watching that? She let her hand fall away from the panel in the kitchen counter. Come sit with me. He did, and he felt better, but not much. They held hands and didn't talk for a long time. I feel it. May finally said. Matthew didn't say anything, but he felt it too. The oxygen was going away. According to the last estimates Matthew had seen before the newswire went dead, that meant the station was within six hours of total power loss. The baby's kicking, May said, feel. Her smile was like a curved violin bow on her pale face. Freckles dotted it. She held Matthew's hand to her belly. He felt it silk and black for a few moments, still as death. Then a kick, a little struggling sign of life within the darkness. He smiled, too, into the deep well of May's eyes. Any ice cream left? He asked, although he knew the answer. I ate it all. Uh huh. Another grin. I feel kind of sick. Serves you right. Matthew got up and started to clear dishes. Are those the bowls Asha and Bahati gave us? May asked. Mm Mm-hmm. Matthew set them in the sink. The sound of the stone hitting the metal basin reminded him that these were real ceramic. He was so used to hearing the nothing sound of hard-molded plasticware when he set dishes down. This moment represented a singular sensation, he thought. The creation of a novel sound he found enjoyable at a particular point in space-time. It was a little thing but something he would not have experienced if he had accepted Bahati's invitation from a week before. And even after the universe ended, that satisfying clink will have occurred and he and May will have been there to experience the stimuli. That was true, that was something at least. Bahati had been a friend of Matthew's, another sysadmin who worked in the same office. He and his wife Asha had been over for dinner many times and they often attended station functions together. Bahati was a large, scowling man with chiseled features and a honeyed voice. Asha was a slip of a thing, with coarse black hair and painted black fingernails that she had a habit of tapping on countertops. Asha was sterile. Sterility was an exceedingly rare condition on the station, but a a one-in-a-million genetic defect coupled with a a one-in-a-billion screening malfunction on the part of onboard maternity computers had allowed Asha to come into the universe without the puzzle pieces required to make offspring. She and Bahati had never adopted and never talked too much about it. Matthew recalled the message he'd received from Bahati when the net was still fully up and he was still working shifts. The subject line had been simply invitation. Matthew and May had fought that day. Matthew had implied that they might consider aborting the baby to make her final weeks less physically unpleasant, and May had thrown a clock at him, so he was in a particularly foul mood. The next day... The last day the Newswire was up, a placid newsperson reported mildly on the impending end of all things, as if they too would not die gasping for air, along with everyone else on board. That day, they announced a newly approved activity aboard the station and gave information on how interested parties could organize their own and advice on the execution of the event. These events were mass suicides. They also encouraged viewers to invite close friends to make tandem appointments to make the experience less awkward. They were like dinner parties, hundreds and thousands of people choosing the hours of their deaths, taking their destinies into their own hands. In all, it was supposed to have been a rather pleasant experience. People ate, drank, talked, wept, and said final goodbyes. After everything was done, the breather would be passed around and everyone fell asleep never to awaken to the cold world or the dark sky or missing puzzle pieces ever again. When May and Matthew learned that Bahati and Asha had died, had passed around the breather along with a hundred others, had invited them and wanted them to die beside them, Matthew spent hours trying to recover Bahati's message, but the system was too fractured for that. Matthew often wondered how they were disposing of the bodies. Perhaps they were recycled, Perhaps they were burned in the station's big incinerators and thereby made martyrs who helped to prolong the lifespans of the remaining survivors, if only by days, hours, or minutes. Matthew liked to think of them like that, nobly sacrificing themselves rather than cowards opting for an easy solution. After all, if they were cowards for dying, what was he? A coward for living? Maybe, he thought, they were shot into space Or maybe someone simply shut the door behind them when the party was over and that was that. Who would know? What are you thinking about? May said. Matthew realized he had been standing at the sink for far too long. He shut the water off and watched the last drops spiral down the drain. Then he said that he wasn't thinking about anything and turned back toward May. The floor suddenly tilted away from him and he had to catch himself on the edge of the countertop. May got up to help him, but he waved her off. Don't! He said, sit down, I'm just a little lightheaded. May walked over to Matthew and took his hand in hers. Come on, she said, leading him back to the living room. They sat together in the grass, a black and a white chess piece on a field of green. They passed the time talking, keeping one another updated on the progression of each one's faintness. Occasionally, May would put Matthew's hand to her stomach so he could feel the baby kicking. Matthew's breathing became shorter after a few hours. He breathed like a bulldozer digs, taking in big shallow gulps of air. May hadn't let go of his hand, but he could see that her eyes were closing. It was that vision of his wife slowly falling asleep that finally set Matthew off. Somewhere in his simian brain, the purely biological part of him finally accepted what was about to happen. He was going to die. She was going to die. He knew it like an animal knows it, and he had no choice but to give in to the falling feeling, the adrenaline that courses and offers nothing but the sure knowledge that you are nothing come to nothing. It pounded in his veins. Without anything to fight and with nowhere to run, he just held May tighter. Every inch of his body, every muscle and nerve told him that the inevitable wasn't inevitable, but he ignored it. Epinephrine sank into his gut and grew dull and sick. He held his breath until the urge to vomit passed, then forced himself to take a long, slow inhalation. To Matthew's surprise, tears ran down his face when he let the air out. Shh, he heard May say. She stroked the back of his head, and he let it lull down against her chest, wondered how long he had been gasping. How are you so much better at this? he said. It was an attempt at a joke, but his voice was broken by gasps and sobs. He wailed, shook, held her like a rosary, praying to his goddess of chess and silk and love and ice cream and babies and life to take this despair away. Shh, sweetheart. Her voice was a foghorn, sounding across an endless midnight ocean. He tried to open his eyes and find her, but black shapes like ink dropped in water kept intruding into his view. I can't see you, he said frantically. I can't see you. Shh, it's okay, she said. You've seen me enough. I'm right here. Her words were whispers. He felt her lace her fingers together at the back of his neck, felt her belly touching his. I'm scared too. Help me be strong. Help me. There was no kicking from within. The life growing inside May had gone still. The baby, he whispered. He felt the wet heat of her tears and soft cheek on his shoulder, ripped at his shirt so he could hold her skin to skin. She pressed forward and they burrowed into one another, blanketing themselves in warmth and familiar flesh. When they smelled one another's smells, fat bundles of neurons shot lightning through their brains and reminded them, this is your other, this is your love. I know, she said, tightening her grip around his neck. She stopped a while ago. She... "'Matthew whispered. "'By the time they had known May was pregnant, "'the medical bay had already been decommissioned "'as an energy-saving measure. "'They had had many long talks about what sex the baby might be "'while lying in their bed amidst the cool blue light "'of a perfectly simulated night sky. "'It's the end of the universe,' said May. "'I don't think anyone will mind, if I guess. "'I miss her already,' he said.' He cradled his wife as she screamed for the death of their child, and despite it all, he found his strength rising in the moment of her weakness, an emergency reserve only her pain could have roused in him. Matthew did what he thought he could not, and was strong, and comforted his goddess, who was so much braver than he. He closed his eyes and pictured every exquisite detail of her face as only he could. I can hear your heart, said May. She waited for her moans to stop before she went on. It was worth it, anyway, she said. At least, that's what Matthew thought she said. His hearing was becoming less trustworthy, a shrill ringing now echoed in his ears. I'm not sorry, he thought she said. So he said, me neither. Matthew's breath had become short and ragged again by the time May's grip on his neck loosened, relaxed, and released she collapsed into him with her full weight and he let himself fall back onto the grass with her on top she was dead now he would be soon the time in between would be very difficult but he would need to experience it anyway those were the rules she was still warm and he loved her very much it seemed terribly unfair of him to be bigger than her to have lived just a minute longer he hated himself for it at that moment The moment he knew that his wife had become entropy, Matthew felt as if he were made less than weightless, ripped from his body. Skimming across the ceiling, a part of the electrical systems now, he looked down on the two of them, locked together, the puzzle on the floor. He watched from above with unclouded vision as Matthew lifted May from himself and carried her to the living room wall. He saw his own shaking and suffocating body collapse against that wall and run its hand over the embedded panel there. He saw the window open without a sound. Matthew returned to his body then, pulled air into himself with detached habit, and leaned against the glass. He looked through the ink black of his failing eyes at the silk black beyond the wall. His hand was on her belly. She was still warm, still warm. As no one watched, Matthew spent the last moments of his life scratching and hammering and clawing at that black window. He moaned his violent despair into a bottomless pit. He fought and raged. Matthew kicked at the glass again and again, knowing that if he could just break through, could ride out to meet death, complete the puzzle and get a good look at it, capture the final piece without it capturing him. He heard again, loud inside his own chest cavity, the words that May had said when she died. She had answered the only question that a living thing in pain and despair cares to know the answer to. She had said that it was worth it. He chose to believe her in that moment. It was his first true act of faith. So he had hope, or maybe he was delusional. There was no one left to decide which was which. With his final breath, he kicked again at the staggering darkness. The day crawled up the front porch stair. The day crawled up the front porch stair to die. It bled its vital reds into the air, to stain and bruise our underwater sky purple, orange, black, and silver there. You crushed its rib cage neath your tender rocking. A stench of sunset burst in all directions. A paradox of talking and not talking At rest, yet somehow ever effervescent The corpse decayed to darkness Flecked with stars That spiced the breeze I borrowed from your lungs I held your breath We hiked the path to Mars Through night with girded censures round us hung An intimacy won the hardest way Accomplices we kill another day I'm mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. Tramites Versicolor The spray foam fungus That sprang from the cleft In the dead poplar's trunk That toothly stump had withered, ached, dried, and split Sputtered, sparked, flared to life Orange and fluorescent Flickered, devoured, grew and paled became a silver crown, a frozen flame, searing, filling, healing the wound, a white blaze atop a torch passed from one ancient life to the next. Winter Clothes I love you best in winter When the cold bites my skin And I throw your legs around me Like a scarf to keep the heat in When I hold your hands like mittens Your hair fur-fringed parka I drape over my shoulders As the cobalt blue sky darkens Your kindnesses like earmuffs Your belly is my furnace, from within which sacred space all my warmth is furnished. There's no part of you, love, that I wouldn't wear as mine, and be so proud and whole, walking in winter clothes so fine. We know darkness. Who are we to doubt the truth, while trees sing green and feed on summer storms? Who are we to suffer, while waves make moan bereaved of lesser wards? How can we know lonesomeness, while mountains sound their trumpets in support? How can we know darkness, while the sun shouts love and life with bluntest force? How can we seek meaning while coral whirls of stars swarm naked warmth and chord whose forms resolve a flocking, tolling, dawning? Who are you to doubt the truth when one song thrums and crashes from that universal source? Of course, of course, of course. grand prize, today only. In my dream, the bowstring croaks, I zap that golden apple off the shoulders of giants, breezy with eyes closed, all the plebs applaud and there's money in it. Maybe mommy hugged me too hard cause now I can't feel free without enough restraint, love plus death is mud, but just on those days, hey. Do you validate? Ambition envies me. Boy, competition cries my birthright out the jaws of privilege. Guilty little doll, top bunk baby ogling stick on scars. Jealous much? Wasn't it a promise? Struck still on approach so, perhaps it's sleep paralysis. Yeah, maybe I'm awake for the first time at 30 feet past the railing. The end of the beginning, out from a church hill. The bell's apple peels, scrapes up sky and dumps it. On my shoulders, slumpish, no, giant eye, not dreaming now, no, half awake at least, guzzling mud. Let me go, I moaned, gut-punched, fist engulfing, dethroned by cronies, Holden's phonies, blackberries a-pulsing. It's hard to look up when you're still the low man, kids getting older shudder, coldly calculating, awaiting blowback. Let your embers rise in blackness on hot wind. Cash crops reaped, the tactless creep, trackless, towards the top ten. Big sale today. Negotiations went mostly as expected. The kid gave me some lip, but I popped him one. Undone, disillusioned, corrected. on love and time travel. Because there was so much love in me, pumped in till I was stuffed as a tick. It was a cinch to fly backwards, soar over years on an updraft, like a fighter jet fueled and armed. I streaked past a courthouse on recon, long range sensors locked onto the face of a woman, a witness, mahogany boxed in a room of accusers, two men at the end of her finger. I braked at an alleyway, my target, shaming myself with the sight of a woman with her eyes closed tightly, two men in the cruelest context, a young, not yet mother. And I had to wonder, did you whisper my name? Did you know I was already with you? It was no matter. I fired my Sidewinder missiles. With thunderclaps of love, under mushroom clouds of affection, a nuclear payload laid waste, exposed the scene to a light so bright that nothing remained. Just a map of the love you gave, grown so full it spilled over, to course through time's arroyo, to shatter and soothe, to do anything it damn well wants to. There, when you need it impossible reflection. The Department of Corrections come back in time, invincible. Didn't you wonder where you found the strength? Whose love fueled you? It was mother's love, unchained, returned to Down in the universe except for John's strained whistle. With... The song they sing into the trap is the fish. Bird plucks the chip out of the sky and it A wild and roving eye. She's just removed the pyrex from the oven and uncovered it, the rubber gloves still hovering with lid in hand her husband standing slackly in the backyard, sighing smoke into the sky. She sees him through the glass, the sliding doorway slickly stands, refracting light. She can't exactly ever witness what's inside him, and she wonders if he glances with a wild and roving eye. At the waitress, at the diner, or the typing pool assistants. Since they moved to this weird desert, all the cacti seem so alien, so, She stifles all the chatter in her mindscape by and by. But he has been acting different, and he never smokes a second, and she thinks she sees the glinting of two teardrops in the saucers of the sleepless, wearied lids of his red, upended eyes. He stares so blankly upward at the stars, the only constant to remind them they moved time zones and not planets altogether for the betterment of country the boys who bravely die, and she knows that he can't tell her everything the crews get up to, but she hates it when he does this. And it's more and more so lately, coldly scanning constellations like he's adding up the sky. So she worries what he's looking for, puts Pyrex on the table. While he lights one and considers, she remembers what her sister said on rushing in too quickly with a military guy. But outside, his brain keeps pounding with the things they said this morning at the presidential briefing. And he just can't shake the feeling. He can see behind the starlight now, a wild and roving eye.